Hi, and welcome back to Failure Peace Theater. This is your host, Tim. Happy to be back with you to talk about another cinematic miss, a misfire, if you will, in the history of Hollywood to see if perhaps there's some treasure to be mined from within that dusty vault. And uh, joining me, as always, is my delightful co-host. Catherine, hello. And, of course, my sister. So we're here to mine perhaps one of the greatest cinematic disasters in history, or at least one of the most infamous cinematic disasters in history, and that is 1984's Dune, directed Yee. by David Lynch. Um, <clears throat> and and I'm going to be super honest. Uh, I have seen this movie, I'm going to say conservatively, 30 times all the way through. That's a I very an, conservative number. Yeah, I have an, I have an unreasonable affection for this movie, yeah. so uh, I'm probably going to be pretty biased in terms of the whole you know, failure piece idea. But Me, me too. Um, it is undoubtedly a, a failure of the highest order in terms of Hollywood. This, uh, this is a legendary Hollywood bomb pretty much across the board. So um, very excited to talk about Dune. Uh, it's it's a, a great uh, sort of touch point in cinematic history for a bunch of reasons that we will get into. In addition to that, it is, in my opinion, it's a, it's a great sci-fi story, right? Uh, it's a very classic sci-fi story at this point. Incredibly influential, um, you know, influential eventually to, you know, I kind of think there's a reason why Luke lives on a desert planet in Star Wars, you know, yeah. uh, that kind of stuff. <clears throat> so uh, we're going to be discussing this one, sort of breaking it down, uh, but we'll start off with uh, what you've been watching. So I'll let you go first, Kate. What's What's been going in your eye holes here lately? Well, I rewatched a Nicholas Winding Refn film, uh, The Neon Demon, mm -hmm. the one he did for Amazon. Um, yes. I've seen it. This is, I think, the third time I've watched the film. Um I really enjoy it. I don't, I'm not like a big Nicholas Winding Refn person. Um, yeah, he, I don't love everything that he's done, but he's certainly had some bright spots. But the visual style and, and sort of the simplicity of themes, I think it was, it was not overwrought. A lot of his films tend to be overwrought. Um, yes. But it was, it was very visually flashy. It was very pretty to look at. And of course, Elle Fanning is beautiful. Um, mm. but it's all about just, you know, the obsession over fame and beauty and possessing those things and owning them. And it's, it's, it's a very, it's a very compelling film. It's very pretty to look at, even if you don't yeah. enjoy, uh, <clears throat> the heavy handedness of the theme. It's a pretty film. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think anybody can dispute that, uh, Nicholas Winding Refn's Films are beautiful, yeah. and they're shot. I mean, you can certainly dislike them from a story standpoint. They tend to have pretty stripped-down stories. I mean, he deals with a lot of very heavy themes, but you could argue that a lot of his films don't have a lot of plot yeah. right, as far as like big things happening. It's more focused on character and emotion, and um, you know. But at the same time, that gives him an, a, a tremendous playground to go in and really explore and, and delve into things that you know, can be difficult to deal with for sure. So, how about you? Oh, <clears throat> well, we just finished up our um, sort of, I don't want to say annual rewatch, but fairly frequent rewatch of uh, Avatar The Last Airbender. Nice. 
um, we had watched it once before. My kids were a little bit younger, you know, sort of struggling to get some of the, the bigger ideas. Uh, both of them are a little bit older now, and so we, we revisited it all. And uh, just really, I, I love that show. Uh, apart from all of the people who are now, like, huge in animation who came out of that show, uh, like uh, Joaquin DeSantos, who went on to do the Voltron series for Netflix, which I love. Uh, man, that Voltron series is great. <coughs> um, and uh, the new She-Ra series, which is also really good. Uh, that's also where uh, Dave Filoni got his start, who, uh, of course, now is one of the, the primary you know, steerage folk for the Star Wars franchise, right? Helped uh, Lucas do Clone Wars, helped Lucas do Rebels, uh, was one of the point guys with John Favreau on The Mandalorian. So Filoni got his start on there doing uh, uh, episode directing primarily in season one before he got hired off to go to Lucasfilm. So just, uh, you know, it's, it's, and it's tons of other people. Like I'm not naming half the people who left that show and went on to do like incredible work in, uh, you know, film and production animation. But <clears throat> uh, just a, a great series, really wonderful. We're, we're kind of moving into Legend of Korra now, which is the follow-up series. Right. And, um, you know, just, it's, it's great. You know, I, I love animation when it's done well. Um, you know, I, I've always had a, a fondness for it, uh, even when I was a little kid, you know, sort of stumbling around and finding weird episodes of Robotech late at night, stuff like that. And, uh, so it just, it's, it's been fun to revisit that and sort of, again, sort of introduce it to my kids, uh, you know, when they can kind of grasp it in an interesting way. And so that's been the main thing that I've been watching, trying to go through that. And uh, I've got a little bit of time off this week, so I think we're going to try and do a Lord of the Rings rewatch. Just Ooh. blow through the whole thing in a day and uh, <laughs> and uh, eat a lot of popcorn and uh, lounge around on the couch. It's going to be great. Well, if you need someone to come over and cry, um, <laughs> just call me up. I cry at several points in each of the films. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. I got the tissues ready. Yeah. Niagara Falls. <laughs> I did see a picture today. It uh, was circulating of Sean Astin in a pool with a like a baby sea otter or something, and someone had, had commented on it and said, uh, "I don't know who needs this today." You know that typical thing. Oh I don't yeah. Know who needs this today? But here's the uh, the guy from Stranger Things with an otter, and then like the reply was, <laughs> "Sam, some, Sam, Sam did not carry Frodo across Mount Doom to be remembered as the guy from Street No. Uh, it was just like, oh my god, that's great, because uh, I completely identify. Well, yeah. So that's about it. Uh, not a ton of things going on. I've got a few more movies in the hopper that I want to uh, revisit. Uh, kind of got halfway through a rewatch of Constantine, which I do want to talk about on the show in the very near future. Um, again, it was kind of pre-Keon evolution that uh, he kind of went through in the late 2010s or early 2010s. And <clears throat> and so, uh, yeah, I just kind of want to uh, delve into some of that because I, I think that's another one that uh, has quite a bit of value to it. But all right, so let's let's dive into this thing. This is probably going to be another long discussion because yeah. there is, aside from the fact that Dune is an incredibly long film, just straight up, uh, it is also dense and complicated, which is one of the major reasons that people attributed its yeah. failure to it. Uh, so the uh, Rotten Tomato score, which again is comprised uh, of some more recent reviews, uh, but a lot of them that I found were, were of the period, since at about 52%, um, I would say critical consensus at the time of release was much, much lower. 
um, you know, nobody really loved or even liked this movie. There were people who admitted that it had qualities about it that were worthwhile, mostly because of Lynch and his directing style. But most people did not find much to value here. And then the audience score is a surprisingly high 66%, which again, I think is only about 70,000 reviews, so way lower than some of the other movies we've done. But again, I think this is more sort of people visiting it now and yeah. saying, hey, this isn't, this is, this is pretty good. But you uh, know who did like it was Frank was Herbert. It? He was not, yeah, Frank Herbert didn't have a huge problem with this adaptation. Um, Although he did, well, we'll talk about the various cuts of this film that are out there here in just a little <laughs> bit, I guess. And one of those Herbert was incredibly involved in because he did feel that Lynch had truncated some key elements of his story that he wanted to see reintroduced. But, I mean, in honesty, any film adaptation of this story is going to need to truncate things. Uh, Dune is by far one of the most complicated, deep, incredibly rich world-building sci-fi experiences that I ever had as a reader, especially at this time in my life, 100%. You know, I mean, people talk about the world-building in Game of Thrones now. Like, Dune kind of makes that look dumb by comparison. Yeah, Game of Thrones has nothing on Dune. Like, because Dune establishes like 15,000 years of detailed history. Um, now, not all of that pertains to the, the action of the plot, but like Herbert had that world built out. Like he knew everything that had happened, all the people that were involved, all the lineages, and you know, we're, we're talking like massive stuff. And so uh, I think even the new, uh, you know, obviously we're talking about this as a new Dune adaptation is on the horizon from Denis Villeneuve which I'm very excited about. Um, any version of this story I get excited about, even the, the garbage, not garbage, but the, the comparatively low-quality sci-fi channel miniseries version of Dune that is not good, I still got unreasonably excited for because I love this story. And it's when it comes up, it's a rare thing that someone tackles something in the Dune universe. Totally. Um, so when somebody does it, it's a big deal. At least yeah, it is this, <laughs> this is absolutely one of those stories that was considered unadaptable. Cannot do it. You know, and we've got lots of literary And I don't uh, disagree with that. <laughs> no, no, they're absolutely right. Like, to, to put this on screen, you're going to have to make decisions. Because so much of this book happens inside people's heads. It happens in these arcane, unknowable places, right? Like, it's it's a very difficult story to adapt in general. So we'll get into the, the peculiarities of that as we go. But um, but needless to say, this, this film was reviled at release. Uh, no one liked it. No one saw it. And only recently has it begun to, to sort of make its rounds, right? It became a cult favorite for sure. It's weird enough that it's going to occupy that space, but people did not care for it. Uh, so on Metacritic, we've got about a 40, so mixed to negative. Uh, there was a recent article, uh, a recent article in the Atlantic that sort of, uh, I found that sort of summed up 
how favor has come around on this from Dan Snyder in 2014, where he basically sort of talks about the, the misunderstood glory of David Lynch's Dune. And I think that's kind of where we're at now. So people have revisited the film and, and seen that there is something here. So the, the critical consensus notwithstanding, people have kind of come around on this movie for a bunch of reasons. Probably also because David Lynch rather than being put in Hollywood jail and never working again, has actually gone on to have an incredibly successful career. Yeah. Post this colossal failure, where people have begun to sort of understand how he operates as a filmmaker and what he goes for and the, the things that he tries to do. Which He had a very specific approach to this material that other directors of this day and age I don't think would take. Never. No. I mean, um, not in my opinion. Though. There's so much push to be faithful, 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 faithful to the source material that it almost throws out any stylistic elements that a director can bring to the table. Right. Um, and this this film is just, it is nothing but style. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a visual treat at the very least. Um, again, you know, we've talked about, you know, with Silent Hill and things like that, that you know, if you go to a movie just to see things you've never seen before, this is another one of those. Like Dune, well, there are things in this movie that you have never seen yeah. and, and are realized fully on screen for you to enjoy. Um, and it's, it's pretty remarkable. So a bit of the critical consensus at the time, um, you know, I'm a, a big Roger Ebert fan. I, I like him as a critic. We agreed on, yeah. on many things. Um, disagreed on some pretty profound things too, but he uh, was one of the re reviewers of this film back when it came out in 84. And uh, he did not have much nice to say. He said, this movie is a real mess, an incomprehensible, ugly, unstructured, pointless excursion into the murkier realms of one of the most confusing screenplays of all time. So not a lot of praise from Roger Ebert there. No. Um, but that review really does get at the heart of what a lot of the complaints about this movie are. It's long, it's dense, it's difficult. There are elements in it that are profoundly disgusting, um, pointedly and profoundly disgusting. So, I mean, he's, he's hitting a lot of the big notes here. Uh, so we've also got Janet Maslin, another famous uh, reviewer in the New York Times. Several of the characters in Dune are psychic, which puts them in the unique position of being able to understand what goes on in this movie um again another sort of common complaint that it's just sort of difficult to know what's going on even people who had read the books often complained that they didn't they weren't able to follow the structure of the story uh, and then finally pauline kale uh, another extremely famous film reviewer of this time period mm -hmm. uh famously difficult right like she hated star wars you know like that you know the popular films she generally was very down on uh and she was not you know positive but she was a little bit more positive than the others and said the movie is heavy on exposition and the story isn't dramatized it's merely acted out and hurried through in a series of scenes that are like illustrations and despite the care that has gone into the sets and costumes and staging the editing rhythms are limp and choppy for the theatrical so. release, I agree. Yeah, she's not wrong. Uh, not by any stretch. So, uh, but a bit more favorable, right? She says there is some things about this that, you know, do work. So the common problems attributed in most of the reviews that I read and just in my years of knowing this film and having conversations with other people about it, uh, 
Uh, Mostly one, me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely us. Uh, incredibly confusing, right? The film itself is, is confusing. Uh, it's, it, nobody knows what's going on. Who are these people? What are they doing? Why are they doing it? Uh, and again, completely understandable. We'll talk about it. Uh, lacks movement, right? It, it, it just sort of limps along. Right, nothing really drives us forward. Even the action is sort of slow and, and grandiose, and, and not necessarily robust. Uh, it's a bit of a freak show. I saw a few reviews that said this. Um, again, this is probably coming down to uh, a particular group within the film that have this this sort of you know freakish quality to them, if you want to call it that. Um, I saw a lot of different ways to phrase fails, but creatively, <laughs> right? Uh, which was, was really a common consensus in pretty much everything. It's like, this is a failure, but it does so in a, in a very creative and interesting way. Uh, again, I think a lot of this is them trying to sort of take blame off of Lynch, which I, I don't think they need to do. I think this is very much the film he wanted to make. Um, but, but they're acknowledging that there is an incredibly creative component to this uh, which I think is true and then you know the common complaint is just a mess you know there's no overarching qualities about it it's just sort of everything in the kitchen sink thrown into a blender you know hit blend on high Uh, so those are the the common problems and complaints and and again I can see where all of them come from like I I don't think I can pretend like these are, are misreads by any stretch yeah they're definitely not um, so the other thing I wanted to point out, and I did this for the Hulk as well, but so I like context, right? So like what is going on in film when a movie comes out? Uh, it's not necessarily, uh, um, you know, something that, that matters entirely, right? That's just because a certain type of film is popular. doesn't mean that a certain film couldn't be popular at the same time. But I think it's important to note here that 1984 is such a huge year yeah in movies right like like it's like another it's like 1999 in movies right yeah. there are so many huge movies coming out in 1984 and not all of them good but there was just so much there's so much and and things that have stood the test of time right we're talking terminator mm-hmm. gremlins mm-hmm. ghostbusters indiana jones and the temple of doom uh nausicaa and the valley of the wind right like we've got we have huge groundbreaking we're going to establish new genres of movies movies and and dune is coming out in that uh well late in that it came out in like december i think yeah it was like december 14th so it was late in the year right back when december release dates were for like your oscar pictures right for like your your uh row your um uh, steel magnolias right like it's it's that's when you released like your quiet family drama films so that you could have them out in time for oscar consideration and so you know dune comes out in a year that has been a blockbuster year for films i mean ghostbusters right ghostbusters yeah. came out in 1984 i mean and that movie was a, it's i mean it, it's huge it was and still is and still is right it's it's a classic bonafide classic i saw some ghostbusters pajamas on sale at walmart the other day in the women's Mm -hmm. department a movie that came out 
35 years ago. And I don't think I'm going to see a pair of Dune pajamas <laughs> anywhere near. No, we're not going to see Paul Atreides face on anybody's <laughs> butt anytime soon. <laughs> Gurney uh, Halleck they... pajamas. Yeah, no, Gurney Halleck dog collars. <laughs> <clears throat> For your pug. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there were at the time. Like, you could get Dune bedsheets. You absolutely could. I mean, it was, you know, enough people were chasing the Star Wars money that, that you could get that stuff. There was a small line of action figures mm-hmm. from Kenner in the whole nine yards, but... They didn't do well. No, no. Finding them now is impossible. I've tried. Um, but so, it, it was a big year for movies, and Dune is mm-hmm. not a palatable film. Right. This is not a movie that I think everybody can watch and be like, yeah, but there is something about this film. And that's what we're you know, going to be talking about. So let's let's get to the summary. Uh, I, I know we do very detailed summaries. I'm not sure we're going to be able to do that with this one. Yeah. Uh, we could try. We can absolutely try. But we have a couple of things to address. So let's let's instead do this. Let's address the the big story of Dune, right? So, uh, as in like the, the original, you know, story of Dune, the, the novel that came out, which was initially serialized, right? The, mm-hmm. the first Dune novel was released in chunks, uh, which was really common at that point in the, the late fifties, early sixties to, uh, you know, rather than selling a whole book, especially, you science sold, fiction. especially science fiction, it was very heavily serialized as a genre. So you sold it in chunks, right? You sold it in these novel novelettes uh, is a term that's actually been coming back into favor here lately. And then those would be published in a magazine and you'd you know get it over four chunks or five chunks. And so Herbert's initial uh, vision for Dune was as this series of novelettes and he released it and it did well, got compiled after the fact, and then he started adding more stuff to it, right? He kept continually fleshing out the world. But the core story of Dune is... A, a battle between warring houses all vying for control. Space feudalism. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's very classic in its approach. All vying for control of a planet called Arrakis, also known as Dune. That is the only place in the universe where you can get this substance called the spice. And spice allows for um, hyperspace travel. It allows for... Uh, a, a ability to predict the future, right? It's this incredibly powerful substance, and it only comes from Dune. So whoever is in control of Dune has tremendous control in the universe, right? And so there are all of these warring factions. There's an emperor who kind of runs the government that controls, which in the, the story is called the Lands Rod. Um, and there's, there's all of this infighting and wheels within wheels and machinations and all these groups trying to upend each other and there's assassinate each other. Program. Go ahead. There's a breeding program to control lineages. Right. And so the, the story itself focuses on the young son of one of these houses uh, known as House Atreides. And House Atreides comes from a planet called Caladan, which is a water planet. It's supposed to be very Earth-like, right? It's a water planet with trees and mountains, whole nine yards. And so they have recently acquired the contract to take over control of Dune from basically their their. Sworn nemesis. enemies. Right, they're sworn <laughs> enemies, the Harkonnens. 
Um, and the Harkonnens are these despicable, horrible, terrible people that are murderous and they abuse others and, you know, just whatever. They're and corrupt. So, Right, and they're corrupt, and they're in the emperor's pocket. They're sort of like if the emperor has a problem with somebody, he pays the Harkonnens or has the Harkonnens take care of it, and then he you know, gives them favors as a result. But Duke Atreides is like this really legitimately good dude. Like he actually is a good duke. He tries to take care of his people, and he's been asked to go take over uh, Dune. He knows it's a, probably some kind of trap to, to ensnare his family and kill him, but he's going to do it anyway because it's the right thing to do. And the story really focuses on his son, Paul, right? And so Paul is a, a product of his relationship with his concubine. Uh, he is unmarried. He's you know, supposedly been trying to marry someone from another house to form an allegiance. It never really worked out. So he's got this concubine that he's fallen in love with. And she is a Bene Gesserit witch, uh, basically a group of of women who have uh, telepathic powers, among other things, uh, who can do all these these tricks. And she was sent to keep tabs on him and try and make sure that he did what he was supposed to do. They end up falling in love. She actually gives him a son, which she wasn't supposed to do. And, and that's the guy that the story follows. All right, so they go to Dune. It is a trap. The Harkonnens spring that trap. Paul's father is killed. Uh, and I cannot tell you how many little intricacies go into this, but I'm just, I'm trying to keep it, trying to keep it together. <laughs> keep like it there's, there's so many little things we could talk about. Uh, his father is killed. He and his mother uh, escape their own assassination attempt and wind up landing in the deep deserts of Arrakis, of Dune. And in the deserts of Arrakis are worms, sandworms. And not little worms, right? We're talking about worms that are miles They're long, like the beetle Massive worms. creatures. Yeah, like they're huge. And so they're, they're dangerous and they respond to rhythmic vibrations of any kind. And so this is a huge risk when you're mining the, the spice on Arrakis. You've got to have all this technology to get people out of there before the worms show up, all this stuff. So they wind up in the deep desert. A worm shows up and is chasing them. They hide out in some rocks and they discover Fremen. Right. And so the Fremen are the native inhabitants, or at least have been there long enough to become the native inhabitants of Arrakis, of Dune. And the Fremen are tribal, incredibly tribal. They have a rigid tribal structure that controls their actions. And um, through a, an initial sort of trial by combat, Paul and his mother are welcomed into the tribe. And he basically starts a new life, right? He's no longer Paul Atreides, son of the Duke blah 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 now he's just a Fremen warrior right but he is special and he knows that and so what we eventually discover is that Paul without intending it has actually become the final stop in a what thousands years long attempt to to create a super being uh, mm -hmm. this guy called the Kwisatz Haderach right again so many terms in this book, I cannot even tell you. Yeah. But so Paul is, has, unfortunately, he has been bred, right? Because the one of the things the book deals with a lot is eugenics, right? Of yes. of crafting humans, right? Herbert, like many sci-fi authors of the 1950s and 60s, was incredibly influenced by Nazism, by. Um, he was playing you know, off of a very real fear that people were experiencing. 
Yeah, I mean, like, there's a little bit of UN panic here of, like, one world government kind of thing. And, uh, you know, he's, he's playing off a lot of the, the sort of consistent fears of this time period. But basically, Paul is the, the culmination of a eugenics project to create uh, the universe's super being, a man that is capable of striding between the dimensions, of traveling, using the spice, like, all of these different things um, that he's, he's potentially capable of. And over the course of the book, which takes place over years, decades, um, I guess about 10 years, I think that's what it is, um, you know, Paul becomes a leader of the Fremen. He begins a campaign to fight back against the Harkonnens the and reclaim Dune. Because after his father is killed, the Harkonnens take Dune back over and they rule it with an iron fist. And so he teaches the Fremen warriors uh, a bunch of uh, combat techniques, loosely referred to in the book as the Weirding Way, uh, which is in the book it's more of like a uh, it's more of like a martial art. Uh, in the movie, as we'll get to, it's it's like a manipulation of sound waves uh, with your voice and a, a device. Uh, but whatever, doesn't really matter. Yeah. So he teaches the Fremen this. Uh, they take. Dune back from the Harkonnens. They cause all of this trouble in the galaxy because if spice isn't flowing, people can't travel, commerce breaks down, you know, the, the universe screeches to a halt. And so they finally get the attention of the Emperor, who has kind of been behind this whole thing anyway, and he comes to Dune, and we have a big final confrontation where Paul asserts himself as the Quisitatarach and, and sort of poises at the end of the first, you know, Dune book, he is poised to become the emperor of the known galaxy, right? Yeah. Like he is, he's prepared to, to be the most powerful being in the universe. Uh, it does not go that way, right? Like, uh, the, the future books of Dune pretty much have all of that get completely unraveled. But at the end of the first Dune, it is very much this sort of, I mean, it's almost the classic chosen one story to mm-hmm. a certain extent. Um, and, and I mean, and that's the basic thrust of the story, but I, but the thing that makes Dune unique are the layers, right? Because everything I just tried to sum up for you, and it still took me, what, seven or eight freaking minutes, um, is, is this intricacy of character relationships, of uh, infighting, assassination plots, right? You know, everything that makes, uh, you know, something like Game of Thrones so engaging, right? But Dune is doing it in spades 70 years ago. Right? And in space. And in space, which is far more interesting than with dragons, in my opinion. Humble though it may be. So, I mean, that's the thrust of the story of Dune. But the problem is, is that even in that simplified state, it's going to be a complicated story to tell. Um, So, I mean, I I guess if we want to, you know, sort of delve in from there, we can. But I I guess let's, let's break the movie down a bit. Because with that story, Lynch makes some very unique decisions about how to convey information to the audience. To say the least. (laughs) (laughs) Now, probably one of the most famous shots in this movie is its opening. Because as Dune begins, rather than opening on a character, we open on uh, Virginia Madsen, a very young, very beautiful... Princess Irulan. That's right. Princess Irulan, uh, who is the daughter of the emperor that's at the center of the story. Uh, we sort of zoom in, uh, or zoom out, I guess we should say, from her eye all the way to her face, and she basically sort of lays out the universe, right? She talks about the year, it's the year 10,191, right? So implying that that is still 
you know, this is still our time period. This is 8,000 years into, you know, humanity's future. And uh, she kind of lays out the, the specifics of the, uh, the Kwisatz and what that's supposed to be. But she's literally breaking the fourth wall and talking to the audience. Like straight up just looking you dead in the face. So much saying, so that my favorite part is on. when she fades out and then she's like, oh, I forgot to tell you something. And she like she fades it back in again. <laughs> points out that there's so much you have to learn about this story that the movie actually might forget to tell you something. Right, like, like like characters in the movie don't even necessarily have all the pieces to this story, or have the wherewithal to tell you everything you need to know. Right, it, it's it's such it's almost like an admission on Lynch's part that we're off the rails here, people. Like, I don't know how to tell you everything you need to know to get this story. I really don't. If you really want to know, read the book. <laughs> read the book. It's right there for you. You can find it at your local Walden Books. Um, so we we then cut to beautiful desert footage. Oh my gosh, there's yeah. so much beautiful desert footage in this movie. I feel sorry for the second unit team that had to go out and just sit in like the Mojave Desert for days and weeks we'll and capture all wind. this stuff. Um, and, and then, you know, gosh, I don't even know what to talk about first. Because we also have a soundtrack by Toto. And Brian Eno. And Brian Eno, which is insane because the Toto stuff is awesome like the soundtrack for this movie rocks it is so good um i have a vinyl copy of it and it is quite literally one of my favorite things uh so like it's 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 insane but so you know the character opens up we get all this beautiful footage and uh then it immediately jumps into a literally wtf what the hell is going on right so the emperor comes out and he is talking to his Bene Gesserit witch advisor, uh, who's very important. And they're talking about, oh, the guy's coming, the guy's coming. And then we are introduced to a guild navigator, one of the people who uses the spice, right, the thing that you can get on Dune to travel through space and time, right? Which it's not exactly that. The movie simplifies what the spice does for these people. Because but it has to, because there's a huge, like, separate section of one of the yeah. books that talks about how they develop into these things. Yeah, you and just, that, you can't. You can't. You just can't. There's nothing that could explain it better than what you could read <laughs> in that chapter. Yeah, so they, they just can't. Again, you can't. It, held, it makes space travel possible. That's all you need to know. Yeah. It's fine. But so the uh, these navigators are horrifically altered by the spice, right? That The idea is that the more you're in contact with it, the more it alters your physiology, right? Especially if you are immersed in it or embedded in it in any way. So these guild stage, uh, these guild navigators, and, and even the ones that attend them are, are mutants. Basically, they've, they've been mm -hmm. mutated by this stuff. And, and they're sort of figures of horror, right? Like, the Emperor knows who they are. Like, he's not shocked by it. But as an audience, I think we're supposed to be. Um, like, they are, are just absolutely off-the-wall-looking um, figures. You know, giant bulbous head, uh, faces that kind of look like uh, vaginas. I mean, yeah. you know, it's like, it's, it's just so visually arresting and strange, right? It's like a fever dream. Right. And, and honestly, that's Lynch. Like that is a hundred percent Lynch. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think Herbert described them more like, uh, angels, right? Mm -hmm. Like they, 
they have these sort of like you know their their skin is started to stretch and 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 flex like he, he doesn't describe them a ton anyway but but this is a very different take on them and it's it's very lynchian in its quality because lynch has a lot of like you know latent sexual imagery in his work and mm -hmm. and things that are meant to it reminds me they remind me a little bit of the baby in a racer head if we're being 100 <laughs> percent like it's like it, they're just giant versions of the eraser head baby uh, with vagina mouths. Like that's pretty much uh, the guild navigators. Um, I do totally love that one of the guys attending the navigator just straight up slips and face plants in the scene as they're entering and they just kept it in the movie and don't acknowledge it at all. Because <laughs> like, Lynch just doesn't care about this stuff. Uh, but He's know, like, well, that could happen. <laughs> it could, you know, I mean somebody's gonna eat it every once in a while but uh you know the visuals right off the bat are crazy uh, the emperor is in a giant golden room like everything is golden um it's it's remarkable looking the set design is out of this world uh it, it's just it, i don't know i I'm struggling to talk about this. This is literally a movie that I know better than most movies, and I'm struggling to talk about it because it's still just so and it's, out of this world and crazy. Well, the, the source material is very unapproachable. I remember when I first read the book, I was far too young. I don't even remember how old I was. Um, I just wanted to be cool. I wanted sure. everybody to think I was cool, and for some reason in my brain, I guess given our family that our dad liked science fiction and you like science fiction... I was like, well, you got to read Dune to be cool. <laughs> and I, I punished myself because I also loved the movie. Um, but one thing that has always struck me is I don't think I would be able to read the book if I didn't have some sort of visual reference. I don't even think I could access the material as a reader and enjoy it without having the 84 film to go along with it. Sure. Just as a visual interpretation of it to, to see it. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, and Herbert as a writer, um, you know, this is one of the guys he's coming out of that, the like Asimov yeah. you know, period of science fiction writers. These were guys who did not and, care if you understood no, what they were talking they, about. No, no, they were idea guys, right? They were not writers in the sense that they're like, Oh, I really want you to understand what's happening in this scene. Right. They're like, no, this is the scene. And this Here's was all the, the stuff you need to know about. This it. was it's, the it was birth very of science style. fiction and elitism. I mean, the the yeah, idea that like if you're not smart enough to get this, then I'm not going to stoop to explain it to you. Sure. Which I think hindered science fiction from breaking through to popular culture until Star Wars. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, really, we're talking about. You know, your Arthur C. Clarke, your Isaac Asimov. Uh, Heinlein was a bit more accessible, but that was because he basically was writing young adult fiction most of the time. You know, 90% of his stories started in Boy's Life magazine, right? <laughs> um, you know, so he maybe wasn't in this, this classification, but these guys were all about writing to the idea. They didn't really care about characters as much. I mean, I do. Herbert does a little bit, but... It's just a, it's a very dense writing style that we don't really see today. And it, it was. It was exclusionary by nature. And the authors who were trying to go against that, uh, James Triptree Jr., for one, who that was a, a pseudonym. Uh, and you had, like, for, Ray Bradbury. Yeah, you had Bad, Bradbury out there. Because um, Tiptree was a pseudonym for a female author, uh, Alice Sheldon, 
and but she wrote under a male pseudonym because because science fiction science fiction was a male genre you you could not be a female you could not be a woman and you could and oh, write science fiction believe me <laughs> i know <laughs> mm-hmm. and so you know this was it was a boys club kind of thing and it was gross about it so it you know, Herbert was definitely playing in that sandbox and, and he found success in that sandbox. If that tells you anything about his writing. Yeah. So, you know, Herbert is, is playing in that world and, and he is very much in that. This is important. My ideas are important. These things you need to think about and, and not always to the best effect. Right. So in, in terms of the film, we were very quickly introduced to Paul, uh, played, incredibly by uh, an incredibly young Kyle MacLachlan. And this was his first acting job out of college, right? He had done some stage. He, I think he'd done like maybe one or two episodes of a TV show here, here and there. Um, But Lynch basically discovered him and then cast him in this film. Right. So let's talk, you know, before we get too much into the story, the, the production of Dune is also in and of itself legendary. Because this was not the, <laughs> this was the second attempt to make this film. Yeah. Uh, the previous one was uh, set to be directed by a is it Chilean, I want to say, uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky. And the the production of yeah, he's Chilean French, uh, and and the production was a massive disaster. Yeah. Right, they got they got deep into production. Um, they never filmed, uh, but they were in pre-production for almost I want to say like two years, uh, planning the film. Uh, originally, uh, Salvador uh, Dali was supposed to play Baron Harkonnen or the Emperor. I don't remember exactly which one, but uh, Jodorowsky very famously has made uh, these like fever dream films. Uh, El Topo being one. Um, uh, Holy Mountain was another one, and 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 these are these are, are you know, you know take like a, a Acid Rico, trips. yeah yeah take a Fellini film and then just put LSD on top of it, yeah, and and it's just out of it they're out of their mind, but they're they're brilliant like they're beautiful films, uh, and gloriously made, but they are they are not traditional Hollywood films by any stretch of the imagination, <laughs> and so. They they put this production together. Alhan, you know, Jodorowsky is 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 leading it. He they have dozens of different scripts, but the main thing that they assemble for this production is production design talent, right? So I'm, I'm going to throw some names out here. We've got Ron Cobb, Dan O'Bannon, um, Mobius, yeah. right? We've got we've got legends in in production design. Uh, Again, there, there's dozens of people, um, people that would, after this production exploded, right? So this original production of Dune, which was like early 1970s, like 75, 76, after that fell apart, right? Cause it all fell apart. They weren't able to finish it. They ran out of money. These, these dudes that were all, not all dudes, but, but these people that were collected, they all went back to the States or they went to other productions and these are the dudes that became the special effects guys for Star Wars. Uh, Dan O'Bannon had to go home, and he was out of money, so he crashed on his buddy Ron Shusett's couch, and he wrote Alien. Yep. Right? Like, the the people that they put together 
to make this movie when it fell apart then went off and made some of the most important films of the 1970s especially in science fiction a lot of the scaffolding in dune was done by people who are incredible yes i mean like the Yodorowsky's version of Dune, if it had been made, would have been awful. Incre- I mean, yes, awful, but also incredible in its awfulness. Yeah. Like a shockingly disturbing and strange thing. Spectacularly uh, awful. <laughs> spectacularly awful. But it was also responsible for the a bunch of really super creative people meeting and working together and then continuing to work together on other projects. So Dune has had this long history of people trying to make it falling apart. They come back to it in the 1980s after the success of Star Wars, right? Star Wars changes the entire landscape of science fiction adaptations because now everybody wants Star Wars money, right? I, I want my franchise. I want to make a bajillion dollars and have people lined up around the block for weeks. Mm-hmm. And so tons of people are trying, right? This is at 1984, so it's been in production since... 1980-ish, 1981, so Star Wars has had Empire Strikes Back come out and be successful, so hey, we know there's money here. So they kick it off again, and this is being produced by uh, the De Laurentiis's, uh, who are you know, long-standing, old-school film producers. Uh, the De Laurentiis's would also do the Conan franchise. Like They're all over the place. If you look up you know, De Laurentiis, they're, they're everywhere, and they still produce films today. Uh, the family does. And so they get it off the ground again and, and they still have all the stuff they put together for the first film, right? Like a lot of that stuff's still in existence. Obviously, you know, no sets or anything, but they've got production art. They've got, you know, all of this design work that had been done. So they bring all that back out. And from what I understand, Lynch kind of just tossed most of it. Like just kicked it out immediately. But a lot of those people that had worked on that previous adaptation came back, worked on this one, brought ideas to the table. And, you know, but this Dune is, is very different from that Dune. And, and I think, honestly, the new Dune will be very different from all of those because it's a, it's a big landscape of a story. There's a lot of different things you can do. But, like, the, the production of Dune leading up until this point was a legendary failure before it even got off the ground, right? So when, when people said they were doing this again, most people were immediately like, that is also going to be a failure. And they weren't totally wrong, right? Right. Um, but Lynch's take on it is just so unique that it gives it something, right? Uh, which is kind of what we're getting at. So the film then, um, you know, we're, we're introduced to Paul and, and we get uh, sort of the landscape of the Atreides side of this thing, which part of the reason why this is a very complex story is that you have you know, Star Wars gets around this problem very quickly by just having characters land in a space and then that space where they land is the planet, right? It's like, yeah. oh, we're on Alderaan now. It, Alderaan's just this one place. And I was like, well, is it though? Because it's a planet and planets are big and they have lots of things. Yeah. And so Dune really tries to give you the scale of planets. It still fails, but it, it tries to help you understand that these are whole worlds with functioning societies and you know, continents and, and, you know, millions of billions of people. Right. And so this story is being told about multiple planets with multiple people doing multiple things all at the same time. So it's just, 
you know, complicated. But so we meet the Atreides family, and uh, we get a great scene. Uh, you know, we get a bit more exposition. Paul is is doing some research on Dune because he knows that's where they're headed, and so he's reading about the planet. We get another brief introduction to the Harkonnens and the planet that they're from, and then we get introduced to Paul's teachers, right? His entourage, if you will. Uh, which are some awesome characters. Um, we get uh, Gurney Halleck, who's played by Patrick Stewart in one of his earliest on-screen roles. Uh, he was not supposed to have that job. He basically showed up for it, and they just told him not to leave, apparently. <laughs> um, like, there was somebody else hired, and then that guy just didn't show, and so Patrick Stewart was around, something to that effect. And... Um, then uh, Thufur Hawat, played by Freddie Jones, another classically trained uh, British actor, very good. And then Dean Stockwell as uh, uh, Dr. Yui. And uh, so we're, again, we're introduced to like Paul's little kind of closed world, right? He's basically young. He's being trained. Kyle MacLachlan uh, is is baby faced as all hell in this. He, he's like 22, maybe 23. So pretty. And, and does the most gorgeous 1980s feathered hair that you can possibly mm-hmm. imagine. He still has it, so I, I loathe him for that reason in and of itself. <laughs> um, and, and we just get this very quick introduction to their world and the threat that, it, that they are under. Gurney Halleck, uh, we were introduced to a couple of the technologies they have at their advantage. Um, they have uh, personal shields that they wear if they're found in combat that they have to basically do hand-to-hand combat with each other with knives and stuff but they wear these personal body shields that protect them from being stabbed unless it's a slow stab (laughs) (laughs) the slow blade pierces the shield Um, uh, look down young prince we would have joined each other in death Sorry, I was freaking memorized, dude. <laughs> um, oh shit! Uh, yeah, sorry. Anyway, so um, you know, and then we find out about the the new weirding modules, right? This new technology, that uh, defense technology they've developed using sound, uh, which again is an entirely a Lynch uh, concept, right? There's nothing in the book about this. The the weirding way that Paul learns is it's like breathing uh, or something. There's a bunch of different ways that you could articulate it, but it's it's basically a defined way of movement, and, and it's it's very difficult to to see and perceive and and, and stuff. So, um, but Lynch sort of you know he wants something a bit more visual. Um, he's looking for something a bit more combat heavy. He's also thinking about the the sort of undoubtedly, at least I know I would be thinking about the sort of big climactic ending and how are we going to have that look interesting and stuff. And so we see it, and, and Paul is very adept. You know, all of his teachers are, um, you know, sort of always impressed with his capabilities. But the, the other thing that we're introduced very quickly is that Lynch has made the very, uh, very odd decision that we are going to get voiceover narration over character action that represents yeah. their thoughts. So much voiceover. Yeah, like... This film is lousy with voiceover, and I actually got into trouble in a film class that I took at college because he was talking about you know the difficulty of adaptation, and you know when you adapt a book, you lose the window into the character's you know internal thoughts and feelings. And I said, "What about Dune?" 
and he looked at me with daggers in his eyes. <laughs> he oh. said, and, and it was basically this idea that Dune doesn't count, right? And and I can kind of see why because literally no other film has ever attempted to do this in the intervening time since. But I kind of love it. And so what it unfortunately amounts to is a lot of times a character sort of staring into the middle distance while a voiceover talks over what they're staring at, whatever that may be. And sometimes it's really short, right? It might be a character being like, perhaps it is, right? Or something like that. But it's, it it does give us that window into their internal thoughts and states, Um, which undoubtedly as Lynch was, was attempting to adapt this monster of a book with all of this internal dialogue and it's all omniscient third person narration. How can I help? my audience understand what these characters are feeling. Like it desperately tries to distill a story out of this stuff. For sure. It's just, (laughs) what, what, what story are we telling? Yeah. It's a lot. Distill is the right word because I mean, the, the original novel is just this incredibly dense thing and this movie is trying to tell a sliver of that story, mostly focused on Paul, um, to, to give us some kind of you know, narrative through line. But Lynch also appreciates these little weird things, right? He wants to call them out and That's have what makes them be a the part of special. it. Yeah, you know, and, and so, um, you know, in terms of the, the movement of the story, Paul begins having dreams. Um, he, he starts seeing uh, strange visions of water, of uh, uh, a shadowed crater on a moon, of a hand, right? Like very, very David Lynch visual imagery stuff, right? Like this is what David Lynch does when he tells yeah. stories is he links ideas and visuals together in ways that seemingly have no purpose, but then are revealed to have purpose, right? And you can see this throughout the entire, you know, oeuvre or oeuvre of, of David Lynch's work. Um, he's extremely visual. He is extremely, you know, interested in juxtaposing strange ideas on top of each other. And, and he is, he does that here. Um, the thing that, that kills me, and I, I'm pretty sure the reason why David Lynch got this movie was because he was offered Return of the Jedi. Yeah. I can't, I still can't believe that. And he turned it down, uh, which, thank God. Thank Because, uh, yeah, whoa, I mean, whoa, Ret- whoa. Return of the Jedi is not a great movie. Don't get me wrong. But I yes, cannot... Yes, it is. Im- it's, it's you fine. Ewok hater. I don't hate it, no. Um, but, I mean, I cannot imagine David Lynch's Return of the Jedi at all. And I don't think he could either, which is probably why I didn't take it. Um, but so like, you know, Paul's, you know, in this weird space and then he gets, you know, probably one of my favorite scenes in all of movies, uh, he's administered a test. All right. So, uh, again, the, the space in this universe is so large and people travel between it with relative ease, but it's still difficult that Paul's, you know, in his late teens or, you know, he's got to be like 17 or 18 in terms of the story, something like that. And like no one's ever come to check on him <laughs> from anywhere else. So uh, the Bene Gesserit mother uh, that we meet at the beginning, she shows up and she wants to test Paul, right? She's concerned that he is something, right? This Kwisatz Haderach. We find out that uh, Jessica, the concubine to Duke Leto, wasn't supposed to have any boys. She was only supposed to have girls so that they could continue their 
quest towards this figure, but she, Leto wanted a boy, so she had a boy, and that's Paul. So she wants to test him and, and check and make sure that he's human, and so we get the test of the Gom Jabbar, which again, yeah. sci-fi terms. More names. <laughs> everywhere. Everywhere. And so they pull him in, and uh, he is instructed to put his hand inside of a box. Right? And as he puts you his hand inside this box... And <laughs> right. And so she basically uh, begins to torture him uh, and tells him that his hand is itching, now his hand's on fire, he can feel the flesh crackling off. But at his neck during this whole thing is, is a, a pointed uh, dagger, basically a finger dagger, that if she scratches him with it, it's got a poison on it that'll kill him instantly. And so the point is for him not to react, right? To stay still, to keep his hand in the box, to you know, resist his impulses. And if he can't, then that means that he is an animal and he deserves to die. But if he can, then that means he's actually human because a human can resist their base impulses. And so we get um, a, a verbatim recounting of the uh, the mind killer speech or the fear speech yep, the litany from of the fear. book, The Litany of Fear, uh, which is something that his mother has taught him in order to control his emotions. And, um, you know, it's, it's this great, great moment, right? Because once he realizes what's happening, because he's not actually being hurt, uh, the box just in, in causes uh, nerve induction, right? It causes you to feel things in your nerves, uh, but it doesn't actually hurt you. And, uh, you know, he, I love McLaughlin's performance in this because he basically, as soon as she tells him what it is, he's like, oh, I get it. I see the perfect, truth of it. That makes perfect sense. I, I would do that too. Right. And it's just, it's so good, man. Like, I can't even tell you. Uh, but anyway, so uh, he passes his test. She doesn't have to kill him. And now he can, you know, continue his course of study, if you want to look at it that way. Uh, but so the families quickly move to Arrakis. And, and that's where things really sort of pick up. Um, everybody's pretty miserable about it. Like, nobody wants to do it, which is yeah. also kind of great. Uh, but they know that they, they really don't have a choice. But we also get our first introduction in, in this moment to the Harkonnens, uh, which, oh. again, none of none of the visual representation of the Harkonnens, uh, apart from a few basic descriptions, are book accurate. Uh, but they're sort of lynches. The, the Harkonnens are, in the book are painted as, as sort of what we would think of now as uh, a sort of blatant industrialists. Yeah. Right, they are, they are are technological. You know, if Paul and his family are are natural, right? Like the entire, like the the Caladan Palace is just wood everywhere, yeah, right? It's, just, it's all made out of wood and stone. It feels very, very classic, very feudal, right? And it's and it's obviously very natural, right? The Harkonnens are hard lines and machinery and steam and oil and and. So Lynch kind of takes all those ideas and then he pushes it in a, in a very Lynch direction, right? Uncomfortable direction. Right. Where, you know, the people that would live in this world, right, that would have this... Because Lynch is very, very famously anti-technology, right? Yes. Like, he he does not see technology and advancement as, as a universal good. Um, there's a lot of technology fear in, in David Lynch's work. Uh, you know, one of the, probably one of the best examples in recent memory would be, uh, episode eight of the Twin Peaks Return series, mm -hmm. uh, which is, is all about 
the destruction of the universe by technology. And, yes. and so the Harkonnens are that. So the, the Harkonnen world, as I said, is like, like steam and oil and machinery everywhere. But everyone who lives there, in order to adapt to this dark, disgusting, dank world, they have all been surgically altered, right? So you've got people with fake... Yeah, there's people with fake eyeballs, their ears are sewn shut, and then we're introduced to the the Baron Harkonnen, right? The the villain of this piece, the nemesis of Paul's father, uh, his rival uh, in the the Lands Rod. And he is, uh, and and he's fairly close to the book. The the Baron is is painted as is overweight and somewhat diseased in the novel. Um, he has an illness that is undefined, but causes him tremendous pain, and he can't walk. And so, so flies around. <laughs> right, and so um, Lynch has this being that he's he's sort of in some kind of suspension suit or suspenser suit. And, and his body is just covered in welts and Ugh. boils and warts. I, I can't, I won't lie. I I was probably too young to see this movie when I saw oh, it. Oh, yeah, this is rough. I mean, um, these sequences specifically. I, I remember early, early on in watching this movie, I refused to not watch it because I wanted, again, to be cool. But those scenes were so scary. They were, it was terrifying. Like the idea of the Harkonnens and that they could exist and that they could look like that and act the way that they do. It just, something about David Lynch and the way he makes movies, he always manages to like strike that chord of absolute Mm -hmm. terror in me. He has an ability to create visuals that are so, it's so repulsive you cannot look away. Yeah. Right. Like that is a unique thing. Like it is disgusting, but at the same time, it is fascinating and unique. And so you kind of want to keep watching it. Um, so the Harkonnens are, are, you know, several, we're into several characters all at once. Again, one of the reasons why this is a complicated story is that we have dozens, literally dozens of characters, um, that we have to kind of keep their relationships straight. And quite frankly, a lot of modern movies, this is the reason why casts are kept low. It's because the more people you have to keep track of, the harder it becomes. Exactly. And so the Harkonnens are broken in, you know, again, Baron Harkonnen sits at the top. He has two nephews, uh, Fade and Raban. Uh, Fade is played by Sting. Uh, <laughs> and, and Sting is awesome in this movie. He doesn't, he's not in it much. Uh, he's mostly in it to be naked and look good. Uh, which, which is weird because that's not what Fade was like in the book. No, Fade in the book was, I mean, of between Fade and Raban, Fade was certainly more attractive, but Fade was not an object of sexual desire, which is, is where Lynch takes it. Uh, it is heavily hinted at in the book in another unfortunate 1950s and 60s sort of villain panic. Uh, it is hinted that Har- uh, Baron Harkonnen is, is homosexual. Um, and then in, in later books, because uh, the, the Dune series continued after Frank Herbert's death, his son, uh, along with Kevin J. Anderson, did a, an additional sort of prequel set of novels that were actually pretty good. And, uh, you know, it's, it's revealed that Harkonnen uh, was, was gay um, or bi, bisexual at least. But, um, and so the, Lynch sort of gets a little bit of that in his relationship with Fade. Uh, Fade is not his actual nephew uh, by birth. It's, it's an adoption thing. But um, 
But so he has these two nephews, Fade and Raban, that are sort of his lieutenants that he sends out to do his dirty work. Uh, they're both murderous and scoundrels. And in essence, they were waiting to hear back from Duke Leto if he would be willing to, you know, parlay with them, basically. Would he be willing to, um, you know, talk about their their ancient rivalry and, and bring it to a close, which is all a, a big lie. Like, it's just a way to sort of keep them in the game so that they can set up Atreides for this trap. Um, and so we're introduced to uh, another Mentat. So the, the the Atreides have a Mentat named Thufir Hawat. and Human then the computers. That's right. And then the Harkonnens have uh, Piter de Vries, who is a Mentat. So, again, just we'll pause for a second here. <laughs> uh, in in the world, uh, again, the, the 10 to 15,000 year history of the world, according to Frank Herbert, there was a thing called the Butlerian Jihad. And the Butlerian <laughs> Jihad was... It's so complicated. God, it's so complicated. Uh, basically, human beings created robots yep. and, artif- and artificial intelligence. And then we got super lazy. And we stopped wanting to work. We made the robots do everything. And we be- they became our slaves. They became aware. They realized what we were doing. Was it the Ixians? Yes, the, the Ixians. Because uh, the Ixians were... The uh, you know where the mentat well that's not where the mentats came from but they were were creating technology they're briefly mentioned in the film uh, many technology you know many new technologies on X right that kind of thing anyway um so they have an uprising and the robots nearly wipe out humanity like we barely fight them off uh, we are are nearly wiped out as a species and so from that point on there there can be no computers right there can only be simple machines or machines that have very, very basic and limited capabilities. So all computing now has to be done by people called Mentats who process information visually and then are capable of calculating it and returning results, human computers. And so Peter DeVries and Thufir Howitt are these human computers that work for their their duke to give them information. And we see a couple of scenes in this movie of, of Mentats processing information in, in the way that you know Lynch sort of envisioned it, and so we're we're introduced to the plan that uh, they're going to assassinate Duke Leto once he gets to Dune, and and then they'll take the the contract for Dune back over, and, and they will finally be the most powerful house in the galaxy. And so you know all this gets laid out for us. Uh, again, it's it's very exposition heavy. Uh, there's a ton of exposition in the first hour of this movie uh, that you know if if you're not paying careful attention it will fly straight over your head yeah absolutely but it's you know if you can kind of hang on to it i I think you know you can you can get it uh because it's there you know it's just you know lynch is is moving at a a freaking stallion's pace right he is just blazing through this stuff and he's not really giving you any time to catch up or process which is is challenging for a bunch of reasons uh, and then, you know, you got dudes like sucking on bug juice and stuff at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, dang, man. Um, but the Harkonnens are gleefully and obviously evil from the get go. Like you, you are, you immediately understand that these people are just Thankfully, Lynch worst. simplifies the morality a bit more than the book because the book is very morally complex yeah. and he gives you that, that good and evil kind of right at the outset that you know the Atreides are good the Harkonnens are evil mm-hmm. now you're up to date <laughs> right and and we're good let's go 
Uh, and then we, oh man, we get probably one of the most difficult scenes in the whole movie uh, where it's established that all of the Harkonnen, I guess normal people, I guess just the folk, uh, they all have heart plugs yeah. where you, you basically have a, a plug holding your blood in. And if you displease people, you can just have your heart plug pulled and die because humans are like machines and we don't care about you and blah, blah, blah. And, and then Harkonnen, like, he does this to a guy uh, in, like, a really, Ew. really creepy, really, really sexual way. Um, and he's covered in oil at the time. I, like, uh. it is, it is, it's, <laughs> it's just so wrong. <laughs> dude, it's, it's Lynch, 100%, man. He is just, where I, I, the thing I love about the scene, uh, so if you watch any David Lynch stuff up until, you know, his, re- his most recent work, uh, he always used an actor named Jack Nance. Yes. Uh, so Jack Nance was the original, you know, main character in Eraserhead. Uh, he, he basically, him and Lynch were, were buddies for life. They worked together all the time. And, uh, Jack Nance is in this is kind of like a, I don't even know what you'd call him a herald, right? He's like, he's basically a guy, he rings a gong when people approach. That's pretty mm-hmm. much it. And, and we get to see him and he's sitting there watching this happen. And even he's like, huh, that's a bit weird. Right. And it, and you can feel it's Lynch. You know, he knows what he's doing. Yeah. He knows the, the, the horror that he is subjecting you to. Like you get this great scene where Jack Nance just kind of like looking side to side, like, oh geez, he's, he's doing it again. And it's like, man, I, it's just the worst. But you get, anyway, you get the impression that like, this is a regular thing. This yeah. Kind of disgusting. Totally. Murder. <laughs> you don't just see evil people being bad. You see evil people being disgusting. Yes. Yeah. There is a, a real additional layer to it. Um, of, of just creepy disgust over the top of it, right? It's not enough to just murder someone, but you have to gleefully revel in that murder. You have to cover your face in their blood to truly sort of grasp this. And it's, it's just such an exceptionally strange moment. Um, there's also a, a great deal of grandeur in this movie. Like this movie is really swinging for the fences in terms of epic scale and yeah. scope. Like all of the sets are huge. All of the acting is big. Like very if I can much. put it that way, like it's very big. Like McLaughlin is surprisingly restrained. Like you would think as a young actor that he would really be swinging for the fences, but like Lynch loves his melodrama. Like, don't get me wrong. Like the dude loves soap operas. Like he created, arguably one of the best soap operas of all time in Twin Peaks. But but he's really got a hold on a couple of the characters. And, and I would say that Paul is one of them, right? Like, as the movie goes on, it gets a bit more theatrical. But he's, he's so restrained, and it's so refreshing um, to see. But, like, a lot of the performances, I think there's certainly possibility that you would be wearied by them a bit, but there are some really good ones, too. So they arrive at Arrakis and, um, you know, things just begin to go awry immediately. But we get these incredibly long sequences showing how space travel works with the Guild Navigators. Um, Again, they're just... They're beautifully filmed. They're really beautiful. It's, It's all of this layered, composited photography with you know, water effects. Some of it looks a little bit like, uh, I remember, uh, God, was it reading rainbow? Uh, when, uh, Jordy, uh, 
LeVar Burton. He went to his <laughs> Jordy. Uh, LeVar Burton like went behind the scenes and they showed how they do the transporter effect. And it's basically, they just film in front of a blue screen, like uh, a bunch of glitter swirling in water. And that's how like they created the transporter effect for the first few seasons of Star Trek next generation. Or like that was the core visual element of it. Right. And you can tell a lot of it is that here, but it, again, it, we get a lot of, of sort of semi-sexual representation. The guild navigators look, you know, sort of penile in their their, you know, sort of visuals. It all seems like it's almost floating inside of an amniotic sack, right? Like mm-hmm. you are being birthed, you know, like hyperspace travel is a form of of birth, right? Almost, and it's so strange, right? Like it it is not how you would expect space travel to be filmed even in 1984, right? I mean, like if, if your experience is star Wars and when we go to hyperspace, the lines get stretchy, right? Yeah. Like this is not, this is different. And it's so, so completely off the wall, but it's gorgeous. Like it's, it's, it's a completely different style of visual storytelling and, and Lynch is, is brilliant at it. Uh, then we get a weird prophecy uh, lady who talks about someone coming from the outer world. She's got blue. Uh, she's got blue within blue eyes, um, which we find out is the hallmark of the Fremen. Basically, if you are around the spice for a long time, but you're not like imbibing it, right? Like you're not like the the navigators, that it'll turn your eyes blue, right? So like again, a little bit of weird eugenic stuff there, uh, but your your eyes turn blue within blue. Right, so uh, we get that effect here, which apparently was very expensive because pretty much there are characters at the end of this movie that all of them have these blue with the blue eyes, and they would have all had to have been hand painted at this point in history. Yeah. Um, Paul arrives. Dune is way different than his home. Of course, it's hot. It's uncomfortable, and and then we get uh, one of my favorite scenes ever, uh, which is the still suits. Yep. So the still suits is what they got right. Oh, the still suits are so good. Uh, so basically, uh, this guy shows up. His name is Dr. Kynes. Professor and Kynes. Uh, Professor Kynes is the imperial naturalist. And he's been on uh, Dune for a long time studying the spice, presumably to help mine it better, but that doesn't seem to be his goal anymore. His eyes have turned blue within blue, implying that he has been on the planet long enough to become like a Fremen. Uh, but more importantly, they're introduced to, again, one of the core pieces of technology of the Dune franchise, which is the still suit. Uh, because there is no water on Dune. There is no water on the planet Arrakis that originates there at all. So if you want to survive, you need a way to provide water while you're out in the desert. And so the still suits provide that. And they are these complicated series of catch pockets that uh, sit on your body. They collect your sweat collect your urine, they collect your feces. As you move and walk, they process all of this stuff and then produce filtered, pure, clean water that you can drink and then start the process all over again. Uh, It is a brilliant concept. Um, Frankly, it's one of those things that's so simple that you hear it and you go like, dang, (laughs) of course, that's what it would be. Uh, but it's awesome. And, and so we get this first scene uh, and we find out that Paul has fitted his still suit properly in desert fashion, uh, which is another part of this prophecy of the chosen one who's going to come and free them from that their bondage. The of the That's right. Um, got, you know, Patrick Stewart is there. He also looks amazing uh, in the still suit yeah. and pretty much in everything. And, and then we get our first look at spice production. 
right? And so it's this, again, it's, it's simple machines, simple mechanics, it's a mining operation, but the concern is always that the worms are going to come, and that's exactly what happens. So uh, the worm shows up and goes after the, uh, the worm shows up and goes after the mine crawler, and uh, Duke Leto does the strange thing, and he actually attempts to rescue the miners uh, because the carryall that's supposed to come pick them up doesn't show up, presumably destroyed by the Harkonnens. Oh. And so here we get the first sort of major iconic shots of the sandworms. Uh, we get a real sense of their scale, uh, and we get a cameo from Lynch, uh, who doesn't appear on screen a ton. But he is actually uh, in this. He is the miner on the carryall who's talking to the Duke. Uh, and you can hear his distinctive voice if you listen pretty closely. But um, So let's talk about the sandworms for a minute. Um, again, it's a, a fantastic sort of sci-fi concept. Um, but these worms are miles long. Uh, they talk about some being 300 to 400 meters uh, in length. They travel, you know, miles under the ground and appear up out of them. There are a ton of great shots in this movie of these worms rising out of the sand and, and the sand sort of, ca you know, cascading off of them and then they're grabbing something or snapping something. Uh, and you really get a sense of how big and impressive and powerful they are. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, Lynch is working very hard to sell us on that scale. Right, because these are obviously puppets. Right, I mean they're uh, they're yeah. they're puppets. Uh, there's there's no CG in this movie. Um, it's just traditional. Which is one compositing. of the reasons it still looks really good. It's, yeah, yeah. It doesn't have anything that's like necessarily aging it excessively. No, I mean there's a bit of you know a bit of compositing work that that definitely shows a bit, but um, all of this was you know. Practical sets, miniatures, models, um, you know, all blended together pretty seamlessly for the most part and, and just shot very, very well. Um, you know, so then we, we sort of bounce. Paul has a, a variety of interactions with people on the planet. He ends up saving the life of a Fremen housekeeper, the shout out Mapes, as you mentioned earlier. Um, and then, you know, he's introduced a little bit to, you know, sort of the Fremen customs and ways. But then, um, just as predicted, the Harkonnens betray uh, the Atreides family, right? They have, uh, they have a traitor in their midst that they have recruited and controlled, and that traitor allows them access, and uh, Paul's father is killed, uh, his teacher another teacher that unfortunately has a very small part in this movie but is an awesome character uh duncan idaho uh who will actually be played by jason momoa in the new film which i'm actually kind of excited about um but uh duncan idaho who was another one of paul's teachers a combat teacher in this case swordsmanship um he uh was sent early to sort of get to know the fremen and try to make contact with him uh Duke Leto, Atreides felt that there was they could offer him something, and he could offer them something. And uh, he is killed, unfortunately, uh, played here by Richard Jordan in a, in a very brief part, but he does a great job with it. Um, and, and Paul and his mother are exiled to the deserts. Right, they take them to the desert, presumably to kill them. Uh, his mother uses a bit of 
Bene Gesserit magic, if you will, a thing called the voice, which comes back frequently, uh, that allows her to offer powerful suggestion to people. And so she convinces these guys to fight over her, they kill themselves, and then they land the ship in the desert. And then they meet the Fremen. And so this begins really the sort of middle phase of the film, which it's crazy to think that we've been talking for this long and we're really just not even to the midway point of this movie yet. Um, but so uh, then we get introduced to the Fremen and we have a whole new world to learn about. I mean, that's the crazy thing is like now we have a whole new set of customs, a whole new group of people, a whole new group of relationships that we have to meet uh, and, and sort of begin to understand. And so Paul is, is brought into this tribe of Fremen uh, led by Stilgar, played here by uh, uh, Everett McGill, who is another frequent Lynch collaborator. He played uh, Big Ed on Twin Peaks uh, years later. Um, he, I love him. I love Everett McGill. I think he's great. I, I wish he did more stuff because he's so good. Uh, but he plays Stilgar in this movie. He takes Paul in, uh, teases in the ways of the Fremen. Uh, Paul adopts a new Fremen name, uh, Moadib. Uh, which is the name of the uh, shadow in their moon, the one that Paul was having visions over. Mm -hmm. uh, so he adopts a new name, and then within the tribe he is known as Usul, which is the strength of the base of the pillar, right? So he is, it becomes a foundational member of this group. And then his mother uh, actually becomes a, their Bene Gesserit mother, their Bene Gesserit witch, because uh, theirs dies. And, you know, so... Paul gets embedded in this group, and he begins leading them on this campaign against the Harkonnens, right? And it's done in a very montage -y kind of fashion um, yeah. in the film, thankfully. You know, we don't have to sit through this development, and we get, you know, the sense of the passage of time. He spends not as much time in the book, but at least quite a bit of time with them. Um, yeah, frankly, that combat montage, after they start their strike on the Harkonnens, is... is there are not any, there are not really any parts of this film that unf that I would label as exciting. <laughs> like they're, they aren't. Uh, there are moments that are exhilarating. Yes. Uh, like, you know, eventually Paul discovers that the Fremen travel by riding the worms. Right. They summon them intentionally uh, with these things called thumpers, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> they summon them, and then uh, they have these tools that open the ridges on the side of the worm, which causes them to rotate to get it away from the sand, and then they ride them up and then attach to breathing holes with uh, hooks, and they, they ride them like, like horses. And so they're sand riders, right? They're worm riders. And it's awesome. Like they're all those sequences are great. Like they're so good and, and shot brilliantly again, a little bit of compositing work. That's rough, but whatever, the man, the soundtrack kicks ass. The soundtrack kicks in Toto's just rocking, right? We got some, you know, hard rocking power chords. Um, and it's, and they're just, they're really good sequences, but that montage is fantastic. Like that when they're, they're sort of taking Dune back from the Harkonnens, um, is great. Uh, Paul also meets uh, Shani, uh, who is uh, the woman that he's been dreaming about his entire life. She is a, a Fremen warrior, and uh, they fall in love. And, and again, this is this is the part of the film that, for me, is is arguably the weakest, uh, because Paul and Shani's relationship in the book is very complicated and very deep. Uh, and you know, I really would have wanted some more time between them, but. 
you know, we don't really get it here. We, we get a sort of nice, I mean, it's played by Sean Young, who was, was huge at this time. She'd done Blade Runner, which of course was massive. Um, and she's really good in this movie. And, and I completely buy uh, their, their love affair, but it's very truncated. It's super yeah. quick. Um, but again, this is a massive movie. You've got all, I mean, there are like 27 characters in the mainline stories of these, of, of this like, movie. What do you want to know about? Do you like, want to know about Chani? Or do you want to know about what's going on? <laughs> yeah, like we got to make some choices here, people. Uh, Paul loves Chani. Got it. Good. We're going. And so, you know, that's, that's cut a little bit short, especially in the theatrical version. There's a little bit more time spent. Um, we see them, you know, together in, in, you know, when they're not in their still suits and stuff in the, the extended versions. But, you know, everything kind of goes wrong, but Paul is able to fortunately sort of stay alive. He leads this campaign against the Harkonnens. He teaches all of the Fremen how to use the weirding way. And then, you know, we get a, a bunch of really good, uh, very solid, at least very you know, good action sequences. And, you know, McLaughlin gets super serious. He, he starts chewing a little bit of scenery here, but it's entirely mm. appropriate. Um, and it, it feels good. Again, the production design, I cannot say enough how good this movie looks and how unique it looks. Like, it is gorgeous. Um, it's memorable. Like, it's it's a movie that once you see it, you're not going to forget that you've seen it. Yeah. Whether you I like mean, it or not, you're not going to forget it. <laughs> right. You may not remember it fondly, but you won't forget the visuals. Um, so eventually, Paul has to prove himself as a Fremen warrior. So he you know, rides his first worm. And eventually it all culminates with him. Basically what you discover is that the worms of Arrakis are, are the worms of Dune are the ones that produce the spice. Um, the spice comes from them and specifically it has a lot to do with when they give birth to uh, other worms. And uh, you know, th that's where the power comes from and the Fremen kind of control that part of the planet or, or have a, a huge hand in it. And the suggestion is that this this oppressed group of people on this planet have been in control the whole time. They've just needed someone to sort of lead them out of the desert to show everyone. Right, an outsider to, to sort of bring them to the fore uh, rather than just being isolated and trapped on this one planet. And, and so Paul becomes that figure. Uh, and eventually he has to take uh, the water of life um, so after he, uh, <laughs> the complications just I, compound on I each know, other. Man. I know it's just, it's just something else, dude. <laughs> I, I, even looking at this now, I think, you know, Lynch is doing the best he can with this stuff, man. Like, what are you going to do here? Yeah, Like everybody I mean, hated on him and not Frank Herbert. And it's like, did you see the book he had to work with? Like, I don't know right. how I would change that into a movie. Right. I mean, again, it's it's unadaptable. Like the fact that they even tried. I, I'm excited to see what Denis Villeneuve does because I imagine it's going to be very, very good. But just the source material in and of itself is the problem. Yeah. But so uh, Paul has to take this water of life, which is like the afterbirth from the worms, and supposedly men can't do it. Right. Only the Bene Gesserit women can can bear it. Right. Can take it on, which is surprisingly progressive i guess in herbert in the 1960s that women have can do things that men can't you know i guess but of course paul can so maybe it's not so progressive probably not but so uh because paul is the Kwisatz Haderach, he doesn't know that yet um but he you know 
the people around him are beginning to suspect. He takes the water of life. He is able to process it, um, and and it connects him to the worms of Arrakis in a way that no one has ever been connected before. So again, he's the chosen one. He the prophecy, blah blah blah. Strange visual imagery, you know, layered stuff on top of it, you know, Lynchian visual imagery, etc. Um, but he survives it and uh, is able to become the leader that the Fremen need. And so this all leads to a, a final confrontation with the Harkonnens. The Emperor shows up because the Harkonnens are screwing up and they can't get spice. So the world's fall the galaxy's falling apart. Everybody shows up on Arrakis, and finally now Paul can make his move, right, which he does. And so he slays the Harkonnens in brilliant ways. Uh, the Emperor is forced to acknowledge his presence and acknowledge the Fremen for the first time. Baron Harkonnen gets eaten by a worm, which is awesome. And then Paul gets into a final confrontation with, with Sting. Uh, with Sting. So Kyle MacLachlan and Sting beat the crap out of each other with, uh, and try to stab each other with knives. Yeah. Uh, and it's great. It's a really good sequence. Uh, you know, we were talking earlier about the knife showing up between the teeth. And by God, that's exactly what we get here, mm -hmm. too. Except then Paul uses his voice to crack his body in two. And it's I will kill you. Um, but we can't, okay, so I skipped my favorite scene in the movie. During the, the montage when Paul is, is wreaking havoc on the Harkonnens, uh, he discovers that Gurney Halleck is not dead. Uh, so he assumed that he was killed when the Harkonnens killed everyone else in his family, but Gurney somehow survived and was with a bunch of mercenaries, and Paul reconnects with him, and we get Patrick Stewart grabbing Kyle MacLachlan and just saying, you young pup. And it's I, I, I get a little really I get a little weepy every time every time I get a little weepy I'm like oh god Patrick Stewart called him a young pup, um, but it's it's just a glorious moment uh, you know in the film even though Halleck is not in it much it's just it's you know it's the quality of the actors obviously but um, you know this is three years before Next Generation and like yeah. nobody knew who Patrick Stewart was. But in any case, uh, everything comes to an end, and then uh, Paul makes it rain on Arrakis yep. for the first time. He calls down water from the sky, something that no one on the planet of Dune has ever seen before. Uh, and it is revealed that he has indeed fully become the Kwisatz Haderach, the universe's super being. Uh, and that's where we end. I mean, that's that's the end. Again, it's the, it's the chosen one mythos, the chosen one story. It kind of takes... The, the biggest parts and the best parts of the book and reinforces those. Because yes. it cuts out the whole, like, Paul becoming the emperor. He doesn't give a shit about that in the movie. Yeah, no. All of, you know, Paul's, like, ascension to power, uh, none of that matters. Because, I mean, if you've read any of the other Dune books, you know that that all falls apart anyway. And Paul basically, like, screws off to the desert and disappears and nobody knows where he is for 20 years or something. Um, well, not 20 years, but he... Uh, has a couple of kids with Chani and then, then leaves, right? Comes the, the blind prophet in the desert. Um, so maybe that's why. But I, I really think that it's just Lynch trying desperately to wrangle this massive, massive story. I mean, you know, I hate to keep using the Game of Thrones comparison, but it's such an obvious touch point for, for modern, you know, viewers of massive fiction. You know, imagine trying to tell the entire story of the first book of Game of Thrones in two hours. Yeah. Right? It, you're not going to do it. They barely did it 
in the eight or ten episodes that they had on the HBO show, and they still left out massive chunks of stuff that took place. So and, I, I, you know, and Game of Thrones is an interesting comparison for Dune because Dune has a lot of fantasy elements to it, despite it is, being yeah. science fiction. It is very kind of rooted in that fantasy tradition of like blending in mythology and folklore and having that mysticism, you know, the cho- yeah. mysticism, the chosen one, you know, theme. Um, I think that it, it fits a little bit better as a fantasy story sometimes than science fiction. And Lynch definitely leans into those elements. He is not at all interested in the science fiction components. He doesn't want to explain where these weapons come from. He doesn't want to explain the ships. None of that stuff matters, which, you know, for fans of traditional science fiction, that is, that's heresy, right? But that's what Star Wars did, right? If Star Wars is not science fiction, it's fantasy. It's a fantasy yeah. film with science fiction trappings. And this one tried to take something that was pretty traditional sci-fi, not for not completely, but pretty traditional sci-fi, and focus more on those fantastic elements, right? Because that's obviously the stuff that, that Lynch was interested in, right? Were those those bigger mythological, you know, building blocks of storytelling. Because that's where and, you're going to get most of the visual information. That's where you're going to get most of those, sure. like, big moments in the film is from the, the larger kind of mythos. Um, I like that. I, I like that he did that personally yeah I, th- I don't know if you could have done anything I don't know if you could have done anything different to be totally honest I really don't um, you know because you know Star Wars was a huge thing but and alien for that matter as well but one of the great things that those movies do is the sci-fi elements are very present and they're very important but it's never the focal point Right. It's there's always this other thing to latch on to. Right. Like imagine if Alien, you know, the first 20 minutes of Alien was them really seriously talking about like engine power thrust ratios and, (laughs) you know, how much mining equipment they could transport. Like, you know, that's the kind of stuff that old school sci fi would spend pages on. Yeah. Right. Even some modern, like your, you know, your military sci-fi, they'll spend pages telling you, you know, what the munition loadout on that tank is and stuff like that. And, and you can't do that in, in, well, you could, but you wouldn't want to in, in a film like this. And so I think, you know, Lynch is a really peculiar filmmaker. I mean, he's, he's fascinated by very specific things and those things keep showing up. He loves the seedy underbelly of a thing, right? Like the the story being told behind the scenes that you can't see so that's the emperor and harkonnen connection right like he loves mm-hmm. that stuff and he loves you know how what are these wheels within wheels going on that we don't fully understand but he also loves this he loves idealists right people yeah. who who believe in things and who want things and who want good to, to sort of be in the world, right? Like, I, you know, I, I hate to keep referring to Twin Peaks, but, I mean, it really is the distillation of so many of the things that drive David Lynch's storytelling and, and his visuals. And, and Dune is rife with those, right? They're everywhere in this, in this story. And, and I think that's why he continued to work with McLaughlin over and over again is because McLaughlin plays that idealist that good person trapped in bad circumstance so, so well. And 
you know, he, he's such a, a good muse for those uh, emotions and those ideas. And, and you really see that here. Like, McLaughlin anchors this film. I, I, he really does. To, for this to be his first movie, I can't imagine the terror of knowing that basically you're going to be in every scene of this movie. Right? <laughs> or at least the vast majority of them. I mean, like... You're it, the star. It's, that's shocking, right? And I think I even watched an interview with McLaughlin where he talked about, you know, he felt that. And it was mostly just him and Lynch having these long conversations every day about, like, here's what's going on and here's, you know, what this character is dealing with. And so, I mean, to say that Lynch, you know, wasn't thoughtful about his approach to this, I think, is erroneous. I think he was very thoughtful about it. But, but he wasn't willing to compromise his own interests as a filmmaker. No, no. I mean, he's he's not interested in telling Frank Herbert's story, right? He's interested in using the framework of Frank Herbert's story to tell his story. And and you can see that in other... I mean, Lynch doesn't do much adaptation work for obvious reasons, uh, probably because of his experience on this film. <laughs> but he's he's a filmmaker who's driven to tell the stories he wants to tell. And, and you can see that in, in pretty much all of his other work. And, and I think he's doing that with Dune as well. But it's so unique so interesting um that i i think despite its its flaws i mean it's very it's long even the theatrical version is long it's two hours 10 minutes long uh to almost 15 which was long in 1984 and it's still long today yeah but again i don't know how you could squeeze it in uh so i guess we could we could briefly talk about the other versions of this story because that's what we just talked about there was basically the theatrical version you know no, no frills, but this film was such a disaster <laughs> that they desperately tried to make it not be one, uh, after the fact. And so, uh, I have, I think you can get only get this on DVD. I don't think they've ever done a Blu-ray release of it, but I, I have it. I think you have the same copy. I do that. There was a, a sort of director's cut, but Lynch had nothing to do with it. So if, if you aren't aware, when a director decides to take his name off of a film, they, um, a film must have a director. Like, it, it has to. It's the rules. But if a director doesn't want that film, they disavow all knowledge of that film and relationship, and then is replaced with another name. And typically the name that is used is Alan Smithy. So there is an Alan Smithy cut of Dune that Lynch was not involved in, did not approve and had no input on by all accounts. It was mostly spearheaded by Herbert, um, who was, did not hate Lynch's version of the film, but felt that Lynch made specific cuts to the film that he believed should be present. So the Alan Smithy cut was, uh, I believe originally assembled for the European market. Um, specifically a European TV release that they were doing. Yeah, it was several years later. Right. Television. And um, obviously they couldn't film new footage. They did bring some old footage back, right? Because the, there were significant cuts made to the film. The original cut, I think, was like four hours long. And so there was a lot of additional footage. Many of, Much of it was ungraded and un, you know no special effects and stuff, so they couldn't use it. But the main additions to the film are these... Frank Herbert narrated um, uh, he narrates them and then 
they have um, uh, matte paintings and and sort of lay out huge chunks of the backstory. Like I, I don't know, it's it's kind of hard to to articulate exactly what you get, but in essence, it's Frank Herbert narrating a whole bunch of stories about you know like the Butlerian Jihad and all this stuff over matte paintings, presumably done by some of the people in the production or, or maybe after the fact, where that kind of bring you up to speed on the universe and, and sort of do their best to try and help clarify some of those major confusing questions like who are these people and why do they hate each other and who what's going on here you know like those kinds of questions um so it extends the film considerably um two hours and like 40 minutes two hours and 45 minutes i think i i don't know if it helps ultimately uh i don't know what do you think um i prefer the theatrical cut i think the original vision of the film david lynch is one of those filmmakers who when he does it he does it the way he wants to the first time mm-hmm. and that's the movie that stuck with me the longest i've seen the longer version and i really like the the voiceover narration but i think i like that as someone who likes the book yeah i think that's there really to appease the book fans because in essence what you're getting out of it is narration and, and information straight from the book like you're really just getting that again um, it's nice to have that clarification, you know, for sure, but certainly clearer than the film was before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, but, um, it's, it's obviously chopped up, right? It, there's, there's no flow to it. You're not really getting, it's, it's just kind of a supplement, to the to the theatrical version you know it's not really a a completely redone version of the story even with some of the later editions you know some of the reconstituted scenes that were cut um you know and the basic framework of the story doesn't really shift in any significant way it's just backstory right um which in a film that is already 75 percent exposition another 20 to 25 minutes of exposition isn't really going to help you. That's you just know? fan service. Right. And, and, you know, so there, I think, you know, Herbert after the fact kind of was, you know, wanting more there, but you can get that version. It's an interesting watch, especially if you watch the theatrical cut and go like, Hmm, I wonder what else there might be here. It, it'll certainly provide you with a lot of those answers, but it's, it's not really enough to recommend, um, as, as the preferred watch. I think the theatrical, if you want to give this film a try and see, you know, sort of what you think of it. The theatrical's the way to go. It's fine, right? And that's true. That's the one that you can find that's actually in high definition, which I would recommend. Again, this movie is, production design is, is gorgeous. Uh, pretty much from top to bottom. Like, uh, <laughs> we had a, a, you know, copied VHS, you know, copy growing up and, for years and I had watched this film a lot for years (laughs) I thought the Caladan uniforms were black like that's what they looked like on TV and then I actually have a a, this won't be the last time I mentioned HD DVD but I have HD DVD version of Dune which is a very nice uh, transfer and that was the first time I realized that their uniforms are green green they are they are deep forest green 
in fitting with the you know naturalistic components of the the Caledonian society. Uh, so yeah, like uh, most of the time when I watched this movie, like I didn't even get a chance to appreciate those because the quality of the version I was watching was so terrible. But uh, you know the the production design, the backgrounds, the sets in this movie are phenomenal. Uh, not everywhere, not all the time. It's a lot of sand, but. The sand uh, it, is beautiful. The sand looks pretty good too. So it's um, very, very pretty and orange. And, and yeah, the it's is, the costumes are amazing. I do want to point the out the costuming is very good. The yeah. costumes are incredible. Like I idolized the way that you know the female characters were dressed in the movie because they were just so luxurious and beautiful. Um, like I love all of Jessica's dresses. And, yeah. Um, just yeah. so luxurious. I don't. I don't remember who did the costume design offhand, but it's some of my favorite. Yeah, Lady Jessica um, is is incredible. Uh, Princess Urulan, obviously, mm-hmm. um, uh, is Bob Ringwood. Yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah, looks like it. Yeah. So. The uh, the costume design is great. The still suits are particular, particularly stunning. Like I, they're just gorgeously put together. They look really good. There's a lot of organic flowing lines. Um, you know, the, the production design. One of the things that makes it really good is that it's often used to illustrate, you know, the people, right? So the fremen yeah. are, are naturalistic. So everything's flowing lines long lines, a little bit of hardness because they, they basically live in caves and rock, but you know, everything's very smooth and organic. The Harkonnens are rigid and belted and long flowy, frankly, kind of Nazi looking gear, um, armor. You they know, look very then, militaristic. Yeah. You know, and then the, the, and then the emperor's just gold. Right? Yeah. Everything just, is just dripping in gold. Opulence everywhere, you know? And, and so, like, again, Lynch sort of finds some unity between the visuals and the people and sort of using that to try and tell their story a little bit, uh, you know, to some negative effect. You know, it's not always it doesn't always work and it, he's not always consistent about it. But, you know, it, it does do a lot to sort of give you uh, an idea of who these people are and, and how they work. Um, you know, the the Atreides families, you know, furred collars, you know, everything looks like they come from the mountains, you know, even when they go to Arrakis and it's well, a thousand degrees. Well, they look like, you know, feudal kings. <coughs> they look like they're, they're going to carry broadswords and step out of a, a medieval castle. Like they just look right. like they fit in with that. Definitely. And then, you know, Paul slowly changes over the course of the story into, you know, the, person he eventually becomes but the cloak they put on him at the end is still very much in that vein um, you know as they adorn him the new king there's a little bit of that but it's it's a bit more tribal I guess but um, yeah I mean I don't know I, I guess we can sort of hit some of the other you know major components here you know we've kind of hit production design um, you know obviously we have a script and story structure that is inherently messy, right? Like the, yes. the reviewers who said that are not wrong. I don't, you know, looking at the films that exist now, there are certainly parts that could be trimmed. 
there are certainly components that could be cut out. Um, but you, you're already losing so much of these uh, character interactions, so much of these relationships. And the more you cut, the more potentially confusing things are going to become. So in terms of the script, while not every single scene choice was necessarily the best one that could have been made, it's certainly, there is a sense of build. There is a sense that each scene, you know, sort of follows from one to the other within each individual story, right? Because that's kind of how I always saw it, was that what you really have are like three or four parallel stories all running next to each other. And if you pulled any one of those stories out and put it one right after the other, it would make a perfectly sensible film. But the fact that you have all of them working at the same time, and then you're cutting back and forth between them, inherently makes them feel slower. And you know what the best other example of this that I have is the end of The Phantom Menace. (laughs) (laughs) Dune, Dune, the entire film of Dune, is a feature-length version of the Battle of Naboo. (laughs) But taking place over two hours, right? Because because the Battle of Naboo is inherently boring because you have to keep flipping back and forth between these four different stories of which you only care about one. Yeah. (laughs) And that, of course... There's so much happening and I don't care about any of it. Yeah, I mean, like... It's if you watch the behind the scenes stuff for Phantom Menace and they're watching the first cut of that final battle and everyone's just mortified, like everyone is trying to watch it. And, you know, everybody in that room is going, like, oh, my God, this is a piece of shit. Oh, my <laughs> God. Like, you know it. Right. Even Bob Ben Bird is sitting there and you can tell he's about ready to turn to Lucas and be like, what the hell, man? What what are we doing? And Lucas himself says, like, wow, I've kind of put myself in a mess here. <laughs> it's like. Yeah, no kidding, dude. That's what happens. Uh, and, um, but that's what Dune is. Dune is juggling all of those same types of story beats that you 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 kind of have to have. Like, there's nothing that happens in the Battle of Naboo that doesn't need to happen, right? The droids need to be shut down, so you've got to have the Anakin thing. The droids need to be held off so that everybody doesn't die, so you've got to have the Jar Jar thing. The princess needs to take over the Gungan people to get them to do what they want. So that has to happen. And then of course, Darth Maul and Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon have to fight. Like all of those things need to take place and they are all taking place roughly the same time. But the moment you start trying to chop those stories up from one single through line, you've got a problem. Yeah. Right. And his other movies have kind of dealt with it in the past because, Oh, we're down on indoor and then we're with Luke and then we're with the space battle. Right. So maybe you can handle three, but the moment you push past that, I don't know. And that's the juggling act that, act that Lynch has with this movie, um, is is keeping all of those balls in the air. And and I don't think he, he does for the entire runtime. I really don't. But there is so much in this movie to appreciate and enjoy that I think it's kind of like one of those books where like every other chapter is a character you don't care about. Just watch it for the character you want. Just pay attention to it for this. Let the other stuff go. You'll be fine. Um, I definitely agree with that. 
Um, I, again, it's, it's hard for me to say. I, I think at the core, what makes this work so well for me is the characters. I love Paul Atreides as a character. I think he's very well done. I think Kyle MacLachlan is, is perfect for that role, if it can be that way. I'll be very interested to see how Timothy Chalamet does with the character of Paul Atreides. Because, I mean, he's, he's a cipher. He's your chosen one character. So you can play him very straight, which I think MacLachlan does for the most part. But, I mean, Paul and Stilgar and Chani and Jessica, you know, all of these characters, you know, even, you know, Thufur and, and you know, these characters in this movie are really just kind of floating around the outside edges. There's so much about them. And Lynch does a very good job of communicating who they are and the things they care about in very small scenes, uh, which he's always been good at, to be totally honest. Um, I think he's probably one of the current masters of just, like, here's a 30-second moment with this character, and now you know pretty much everything about them that you need. Yeah. Um, I, I think that uh, there's a lot of, there's just a lot of character work in here that's super good. And there's some great actors, too. I mean, even the guy who plays Harkonnen, um, he didn't do a ton in the United States. Another very, you know, I think he was an American actor, but he worked in Britain a lot. But he's fantastic. Like, he's super, super good. Uh, Brad Dourif, uh, early in his career, who now has become sort of a sci-fi horror legend, playing uh, Grima Wormtongue in the Lord of the Rings series, and Chucky, and you know, who knows what else. Uh, but he is fantastic as Peter DeVries in this movie. Um, like, he's great. Um, Jürgen Prochnow. From Das Boot. From Das Boot uh, is, is Paul's dad, and he's awesome. Uh, you know, he's only in it for like 10 minutes, but he's great uh there's just i don't know man like i'm so a lot of good performances and great production design like it's it is a movie that's i think if you like science fiction it's important to watch it and to experience it or if you want to like science fiction it's important to to see it because it's referenced a lot dude Mm -hmm. yeah it's still uh, you know a pop culture reference yeah, even, even though, despite it being a failure, it, it still is a visual and, and sort of touch point for a lot of, of film directors and, and people yeah. who work in the industry. And it's still the most accessible way to get at Herbert's material. Mm. Um, and it's the most well-known way. I mean, there have been other interpretations, and we have one that's coming up. But, you know, I, I don't know what the success of that movie will be. I don't know if the world is ready for another Dune movie. Um, but this this movie has for well since 1984 it has existed in our consciousness as the representation of Frank Herbert's world yeah Worlds. for a lot of people <laughs> like I said we did have the you know the sci-fi channel attempted to dip their toes back into the Herbert universe um, they did a, a six hour miniseries of the original story which is watchable uh, it's it's not great the production values are Exactly what you would expect from a Sci-Fi Channel original of that era. The uh, sequel to it, Children of Dune, was interesting, if only because it had a very young uh, James McAvoy at its center as Leto, Atreides II, uh, uh, Paul's Paul and Chani's oldest son. Yep. Um, you know, so there are other you know ways to engage with that material if if this movie proves you know just too weird, basically, but. 
that weirdness gives it so much character. And maybe that's why I've latched onto it is that the fact that a movie this odd, just straight up strange, both from a story and an interpretation context, both from its visuals and its, its bizarre choices. It is such a unique product in terms of Hollywood. Like you just don't see stuff like this come out of this system, right? It just doesn't happen. You know, there's even in 1984, there were too many roadblocks to allow a thing like this to exist. And that's something that, that David Lynch brings to all of his films. That's a quality that all of his films have is it doesn't feel like you can get this anywhere else. Yeah. Like, Um, yeah. Just, they're very crafted. They're very thoughtful and they're very purposeful they're strange and they may not be the best movies you've ever seen but there there's there's artistry there there's something worth looking at oh for sure yeah i mean there's you know lynch is one of the few film directors that i feel very safe and very comfortable in calling an artist yeah. right all our all film is art even commercial film you know it, even even a director who is is you know day in and day out going down to the film mines and knocking out a film <laughs> it's they're still producing art but lynch specifically is a director that is an artist first exactly. he is an artist who has chosen the medium of film to communicate his ideas and and that is just a very different kind of person Right. It's a very different kind of filmmaker. You know, as much as I love a guy like Steven Spielberg and I can watch his films and enjoy them and see the brilliant artistry behind them. He is they not don't David take a Lynch. Lot of risks. No, no, definitely not. Um, my son wanted to, re- to rewatch uh, Ready Player One a couple weeks ago. And he's, I was like, really? He's like, yeah, man, Dad, I, just, I want to see that again. I was like, OK, all right, we can watch that. And so we watched it and it was great. You know, it's like this is, this flows. It's got really great action, obviously. Um, you know, but nothing in one of those films, and, and this is not true of all Spielberg, obviously, but nothing is ever, nothing in a, in a film like that has ever challenged me in the same way that a, a Lynch film has. Yeah, and then they're not meant to. Yeah, I mean, some of them do. Like Spielberg, when he aims for that, he can absolutely hit that mark, but that's not usually his goal. Um, and, and Lynch is just one of those guys. I mean, if you've ever seen something like, you know, Mulholland drive or inland empire or lost highway. Highway, Yeah. Um, like these are experiences that are absolutely unforgettable. Right. Like, uh, I, I, I cannot speak highly enough of the, the twin peaks revival series, uh, from a couple of years ago. It's brilliant from start start to finish uh i mentioned episode eight earlier uh episode eight of twin peaks will be taught in schools Uh, i think it'll be (laughs) held up as a example of avant-garde filmmaking for decades to come like it's it's incredible right it's absolutely incredible and and lynch is capable of, of evoking those ideas and creating those kinds of images that will stick with you for the remainder of your life and and there are some of those in this movie, right? And apart from telling a compelling, epic sci-fi story, 
he is also capable of just seeding an idea in your mind that you'll never forget. And, and yeah. Dune has, has got those in spades. And I, I love it. Like I said, there are, there are moments in this movie that are so iconic in my mind that I can call them up at a moment's notice. And, well, and, it's one you know. of those movies where, like, we can quote it at the dinner table. Oh, endlessly. Like, it's, it's just, yeah. I don't know why this movie, I don't I don't know, but it's something about the way it's made. It's something about the way it looks. Um, I'm glad that people are softening toward it. Like, mm. I, I hated to see it maligned so much. Yeah. Um, people are still hard on the books because they're complicated and they're difficult and they only get more so by by chapter house dune like it it's it's pure insanity at that point yeah i mean it's great but it's insane even the best of fans are like look i i don't know what to tell you (laughs) (laughs) you know stuff gets weird um yeah i I actually a similar experience and you know i'm sure you've had this too i i took some students to a uh to an art museum not too long ago and you know they they had to find pieces that resonated with them and and sort of you know jot down why and sketch out the the you know piece of art and who who made it all this different stuff and and it's fairly common refrain as we were talking about it later was i don't know why i liked this right but i did like it just it it struck me and and you know so we talked through that a little bit and like okay well you know was it you know was there a component of it was it the overall you know, look and sometimes they would be able to come up with an idea you know after contemplating it a bit but a lot of them still were just I like just I, I, I don't know what about this thing drew me to it but it did you know and and maybe that's just a hallmark of great art is that sometimes it hits you just the right way and you can't really put your finger on what it is or what component or what piece or what part I can critically analyze to better understand my, my reasoning, but it resonates, right? It just sticks with you. It sits in your gut and won't go away. And for me, that's Dune. That's, right? yeah. I mean, that is this movie. I don't know if I, I mean, we've attempted to sort of put our finger on some of the things and there are things you can point to that, yes, this works. Yes, this is good. No, that's not great. But like, if you want me to tell you why when I'm sick at home, I have a cold and I don't feel good and I just want to watch a movie and lay in bed, that movie is Dune. Like nine times out of 10, that's the movie I will select. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's very watchable. I don't know why. Like, uh, there, I'm sure there are definitely people who probably will end up listening to this who go like, "No, it's not." <laughs> but you know, but in for me, it's just that that unnameable thing. And maybe that's maybe that's my relationship with all of Lynch's work. You know, if I really try to break it down, that it's there's just this unnameable quality, right? Because I might be able to show episode eight of Twin Peaks to somebody and have them be like, "That was garbage." But for me, I watched it and... Your face was, is garbage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but I watched it and I was, I was utterly moved by it and amazed by it and, and struck by it. And I don't know if I can explain fully why. And I don't know if I have to, I mean, if we're being honest. But, you know, I this... I think that's the power yeah. of, of the medium of film at work. Sure. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't think there is. I mean, we've talked a lot about Marvel movies on this this you know podcast already, and I'm sure we'll continue to. And it's probably the most formula heavy genre that's that's really successful right now. Um, and they have certainly found a formula for those movies that works for a good number of people. But if you look back through the you know the history of film, and not just films that were successful, but films that you know impact, you know, made an impact, right? That the people have looked at and the you know now, like because Citizen Kane when it came out was not a huge deal, right? No. Like, I mean, it was fine. People were like, oh, that was good, but nobody cared. But now look at now we look at it and go like, oh, dang, like actually that was really Genius. important. You know, and, and there, of course, it's the modern stance on Citizen Kane is that it's garbage again, because, you know, whatever. Um, but ultimately, like, we can't always put our finger on it at the time, what makes a movie something, right? Yeah. Uh, versus the millions and dozens, and, or, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of films that are nothing, right? I mean, like, you know, both of us growing up in the 1980s and, and you know, 1990s, we remember walking through the aisles of a video store and 99% of the crap in that video store was literal garbage. Not even worth right? a second look. Yeah, like not even worth it. I mean, and this is a podcast about looking at garbage films that deserve another look. But, you know, a lot of that stuff was was never intended to stand the test of time. But every once in a while, there's this little thing that's like, you know what? There's something here. I don't know what it is, but there's something here. And then it, it jumps at you. And and Dune, for me, was always that movie. And I cannot even explain why. Not fully. But because I feel that way, I think it's a movie that, as you said, everybody should at least see. Yeah. Right? Whether you wind up liking it or not, it doesn't really matter. But it's worth seeing because, it, again, it's it's unique. And there's something about it um, running underneath the surface that you can grab onto in a way that a lot of other movies aren't going to give you. And you know? I don't know that I've met a lot of people who watched the film and didn't like it say that they regret watching it. No, I don't think it's a movie that you would regret watching. Um, I Again, I don't know if you would enjoy it. So if your purpose is enjoying <laughs> it, maybe. But it's, it's a certain... You know, again, it's an incredible film. In the scope of films that came out in 1984, eh, it doesn't really rank that high, I guess. You know, it's no Ghostbusters. Don't get me wrong. Um, but man, it's it's got something about it that's worth people's time. It really does. All right. Uh, well, if we can articulate it, what is one thing that uh, might help elevate Dune from that very it's kind of art status into something a bit more palatable for folks. What do you think? Um, unfortunately, the only thing that you could really do is simplify it even more. And that sure. would be at the cost of major story elements. So I don't know that that would be successful, but I would like to at least see someone try that. Um, and I'm wondering if the, the new... Dune will take a different approach. I'm, I'm anxious to see what kind of approach that takes. Well, um, I did find out that the the new Dune, uh, the the movie that's coming out, is just the first half of the book. Oh, well, that works. Which will trem- help tremendously in terms of getting through the story. <laughs> yeah, we might um, be able to like spend some time with people before they just die. On yeah, I, I had no <laughs> idea uh, that that was the case. And then uh, I guess whatever Vanity Fair article they did on it a couple couple weeks ago. 
Villeneuve said that he he got approval to just do the first half of the book, which I was nice. like, well, okay, that will help for sure. That's uh, that's so. exciting. That that gives me something to look forward to. Just yeah, you know, different hopeful. handling of the material. Um, right. Yeah. But that's about all you could really do. I don't know if you could strip too much from this movie without, again, taking away some of the artfulness of its construction. Um, if anything, like, I would almost prefer to see more David Lynch and less Frank Herbert, because when it comes down to it, if I want Frank Herbert, I'll just read the book. Right. Yeah. Direct adaptation, I don't think benefits the story, um, which we've, we've kind of discussed as well, but yeah, I guess mine kind of falls into that same category. Um, the script is breathlessly expository. It is constantly trying to convey. It vast has voiceover of narration whispering exposition to right. you at certain points. Like it is constantly giving you information. And as much as I love that choice, and I know that it's one of the unique things about the film that has sort of made it stick in my craw, so to speak, I, I kind of wish the movie was constructed where it didn't need it. Because I think that it would be more palatable for general audiences without it. Uh, as much as I love it, and as much as I think that it kind of works to link the film version with its written counterpart and provide us with that experience of getting inside a character's head, I think it's probably one of the things that turns a lot of people off. And they would probably benefit from not having it. Um, and frankly, you know, Lynch is, is a visual enough storyteller that I think he could probably still communicate most of those ideas without it. But it seems quite frankly, like the, the easiest way to do what he needed to do. And, you know, very famously, while this film had a, you know, very long pre-production schedule, once they finally got the ball rolling, this thing was, was near disaster most of the time. And I could see Lynch just needing to, I got to get through this thing, man. I got to do this. You know, he goes, (laughs) I just got to finish this thing and and move on. Cause he has talked about it being, that was a very difficult time. He didn't work for a while after that. Cause it was, it was very hard. It reminds me a lot of, um, what happened to David Fincher with alien three. Yeah. Um, you know, cause I I was kind of trying to rack my brain a little bit, but you know, Lynch rose to prominence because of Eraserhead, which was this tiny, tiny art film. Basically, it was a student film um, that made big waves, right? And he came out of the scene. And did he make Elephant Man before this? I think he did. Yeah, he made Elephant yeah. Man and Eraserhead. And so he made Eraserhead, he made Elephant Man, and then he gets his big break, right? People start paying attention, right? So he gets Star Wars offered to him, turns it down, doesn't want to make somebody else's story, in that way at least. And then he gets Dune, and he takes it, right? So is this like one of the earliest examples of this now... Hollywood tradition of taking a relatively untested indie filmmaker with a little bit of experience and a lot of chutzpah and then giving them one of these massive multi-million dollar productions. I think so. I kind of think it is. I I think everybody saw his first two movies and they were like, this guy can do something. And they just started dumping projects on him. And this is what he picked. Yeah. And, And then it just got out of control very quickly because um, he was wrangling with the studio. I, rem- I remember reading an interview with him where he said that he was fighting the studio constantly. 
right? Just studio saying, do this, do that, do this, do that. And he was just like, just let me make my movie. And, and it just, it reminded me so much of Fincher's experience in Alien 3. And now, you know, this is, that's standard practice, right? Oh, hey, um, well, uh, Jordan Voked Roberts, right? He made Kings of Summer, this tiny little indie movie mm-hmm. about, a, about kids and, you know, dealing with moving away from their home in the summer or something. And then he gets Kong, <laughs> Skull Island's like, what? You're going to give this dude $160 million and tell him to go make a Kong movie? Like, how does that work? But yet at the same time, it really feels like that's what studios do now. They use independent film as kind of this farm team, and then they pull these people up, and then it seems like they hope that they'll just kind of do what they're told. And, and then, then not always. Not always <laughs> do, which is what Lynch did here. So maybe it's a bit of that, and it's maybe one of the earliest examples of that happening. Um but yeah, it's it's just strange that genre film tends to to have that happen with its directors, right? We we're gonna give, you know, this this person who made this four million dollar indie movie two hundred million dollars and say go make it. Yes. In David Lynch's case, it's like we're gonna take this dude who made a four thousand dollar movie, yeah. in give a backyard him, over a weekend. Give him one hundred and forty million dollars <laughs> in nineteen eighty four and tell him to go make a sci fi epic that's never been seen before. Great, good move. Sounds good. <laughs> So, so that would probably be mine. It's just, you know, maybe strip some of the voiceover narration out. Try again, try and, and straight, straighten out the script as much as you can. But uh, again, I don't think you're going to be able to do much because every bit you strip away is another thing that leaves a point of confusion for your audience. Yeah. As confused as people were in this movie, I can't imagine being less confused with less information. Exactly. So. All right, so we're going to do our, our failure piece score, but you know, I, I, at this point it's probably obvious that I'm so horrifically biased towards this film that I'm, <laughs> this is probably going to be basically meaningless, but we'll do it just for the sake of doing it. Um, so I'll go first. Uh, my failure piece score for this is 100. <laughs> uh, this, is my, this is my benchmark film for a failure piece because it is an absolute failure on so many levels. Like I can't, we probably can't even articulate all the levels on which this film fails. Action, pacing, dialogue delivery, the list goes on and on. By, by many modern standards, this film fails, but I love it to my very core. It's one of my favorite films of all time, and I cannot help but recommend it fully to anyone and everyone who might want to give it a chance. So, I, so yeah, my, 100. My rating is is uh, not going to be much help. It is also 100. Yeah. <laughs> because this I, I just can't, I can't not give it a 100. I don't know how to not like this movie. Yeah. Um, and I'm one of those people, like, if, if other people don't like this movie, I'm like, well, what's wrong with you? <laughs> right. You're the one that's wrong, <laughs> not me. Um, um, I mean, but even just the, you know, sitting here and I can hear the soundtrack in my head, those... The, da, 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 da. It's, it's so good, dude. I want to watch it again. Um, but... It's, it's one of those things that I, I can't defend this position adequately, right? I cannot provide you with any specific one piece of, of you know, quantitative evidence that this is a good movie. But yet, I have intense affection for it. I feel like it is a unique thing in the scope of film 
right? Some, it's a, a failure on such a grand scale that we just don't get anymore, right? Every, I mean, apart from like, you know, Justice League or something, which is just like this 200, this $300 million, like just dumpster fire of a film, you know, like we get those, but those you look at and you just kind of giggle, right? Like, I don't look at that and say like, wow, what a great piece of overlooked art. I'm just like, man, Ben Affleck, right? (laughs) Most of them aren't even artfully made. They're not, they don't have a lot of quality to them. They're just made to get out there and give people information. Yeah, they are, they are a product. Right. And, yeah. and I am not the type of, you know, film buff that's like, you know, oh, movies are art, man. Uh, you know, look at my sunglasses. You know, like I'm not <laughs> that guy. But yet at the same time, film is one of those things that can produce incredible products that are enjoyable, like a Marvel movie, but can also produce art. And it is yeah. rare that you find something that was intended to be a product that somehow <laughs> transcends into something that is closer to art, at least on some level that doesn't happen, right? It either is a product and becomes a trash product or it is art that becomes trash art. Like it doesn't cross in that way very often. And in this case, it kind of does. Um, oddly enough, I'm, I would sort of put Denis Villeneuve's Blade Runner 2049 in this category as well, right? Which is a movie I, I hope to talk about because it too was an unfortunate failure that I kind of love. But it's a movie that is a product, absolutely is a product. I think it's the script is most of the problem. It, it's fine, but it has issues. Um, but it, it every once in a while it just pokes its head ever so slightly over into art territory as many of Villeneuve's films tend to. Yeah. And, and it just, mm, there's just something there. Like I cannot explain what it is because it's, there's a lot wrong with Blade Runner 2049, mostly Harrison Ford. Um, (laughs) (laughs) He's great when he gives a crap, but he didn't give a crap in that one. He's Um, old, (laughs) (laughs) but he likes the money. Um, So it, so it kind of, it's interesting that Villeneuve, who is, is one of those filmmakers who can work in both product and art, in my opinion, is also now being tasked with remaking a film that very much is in the same position. And, and I'm really excited to see what he comes up with. We'll probably revisit this when, when that gets closer, you know, just to to sort of come back at it, but. Well, we've got to watch the, we have to watch this Dune in preparation for new Dune. Exactly. That's what we'll do. We'll watch this, we'll watch this to get ready for it. And then we'll go see the new Dune and then we'll, we'll do a reactions (laughs) cast. That would be awesome. That would be cool. All right. Well, it wasn't as long as I was expecting. Uh, It was pretty good, but uh, yeah, we can kind of wrap this one up. So uh, where can you be found on social media? Uh, You you can find me at Baskinator on Twitter and The Baskinator on Instagram. You should check out my Instagram. It is fire. Very nice. Uh, You can find me at TBaskin on Twitter. It's the best place. I got some other places, but uh, that's really the only one I check on the reg. Uh, You can contact us directly at fpeacetheater 
at Twitter uh, or at FPS Theater on Twitter, and failurepeace at gmail.com if you have any questions or want to get in touch. Um, all right, so we're going to close this one out. Thanks for listening to our discussion of Dune, uh, one of the sort of seminal favorites that uh, we both grew up loving. So uh, hopefully we've given you the opportunity to think about tracking it down and giving it a shot uh, or you know finding it on some cable channel when it's airing because I'm sure it is. But in any case... I uh, think... Is it still on Netflix? Uh, it was for a good long while. I don't know if it still is, but yeah, I'm sure it's got to be streaming somewhere. They have so much money they need to make back. <laughs> <laughs> Even now, they're still paying the bills <laughs> on Dune. 30 still years got a loan out on that movie. That's right. 30 <laughs> years later, the Laurentis family's like, ah, we still owe like $20 million on this thing. One of guys. our houses still has a mortgage out from that. <laughs> We're going to have to sell the one with the pool, honey. But in any case, uh, thanks for listening. We will certainly see you next week. Have a good one.